Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Luis Ribeiro about the life and work of astrologer Helena Avalar. Uh, so, hey, Luis, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Chris. Yeah, so um, we've been meaning to do this um, episode uh, for a few months now uh, to talk about your partner, Helena, who uh, passed away unexpectedly earlier this year on March 9th. And who you had collaborated with for a few decades now in your work on astrology. And she actually had a book that came out, which was the published version of her PhD dissertation that came out just a few months ago, uh, as well as other uh, a paper that actually just came out a few days ago. So we were going to do in this discussion kind of an overview of her life. And then in the second part, discuss her work and especially her book that just came out. Which is titled An Astrologer at Work in Late Medieval France, The Notebooks of Espel. Um, so, uh, how are you doing, just first off? Okay, I'm okay, I'm doing fine. Yeah, so yeah. you've continued um, the work, a lot of the work that you guys were doing since that time? Yeah, yeah, I assumed uh, the, the teaching um, uh, of, the, of our school. Um, and some of the projects uh, that we had together, uh, some of the academic projects. So um, these works that we're going to talk to discuss uh, today were the last ones where Lena well, that she wrote directly, and mm. um, and now for in the future there will still be a few works uh, that we were doing together, which I'll finish at some point. Okay. Yeah. Um, so previously, the two of you had done an episode with me on the podcast, actually, that was released almost two two years ago, exactly, yeah. um, which was um, episode two twenty five, titled uh, "Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro on Traditional Astrology." Um, so people can can go back and listen to that for for some of our previous discussion, um, where we talked more about your thoughts on traditional astrology, but here I thought it would be good to give more of a chronology of Helena's life from you, since you knew her the best out of out of anybody, and can maybe provide some more insight into just to the significance of her contributions to astrology and how um, she grew and developed as an astrologer during the course of her life. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, Helena. Uh, Always have uh, had uh, an interest to for astrology, um, which came from mythology. She would always tell this um, this tale that her grandfather used to read her bedtime stories with uh, the ancient Greek myths, um, of course, tailored for a child, of course, uh, without the the more adult bits. Um, but she 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 grew on that, and so when uh, at some point she started to be interested in astrology, that was there, you know, that that interest on the myths and on the on the stars and on the meanings of the constellations that was always there. So she had an interest in um, astronomy as well, you know, observing the sky. She she liked that a lot, and from there uh, the interest grew. Uh, she then became, she was a reporter, a journalist for, for some years. And at some point, she decided to start studying astrology. And she tried to seek out uh, 
first i think she she got a consultation which was not that good uh, <laughs> right i think she said she had some familiarity with like um sun sign astrology in her teen years as a teenager but um i was watching an interview with her that actually goes into her life quite a bit that was um published in november of 2020 just last year by Volker Schindel uh, on his YouTube channel. It was titled Dr. Helena Avalar, um, Astro Project Traditional Astrology. And she said she had some like basic exposure to sun sign, but she had this sense that there, there must be more to this or that there must be something else there. And eventually she did discover real astrology and birth charts. Yeah, exactly. And then she, she found uh, a school here uh, in. Um she she got final i think after a one unsuccessful attempt at uh, having a proper reading she found then a proper astrologer to to give her a reading and uh in the end she wanted to study and he advised her uh the school that existed in portugal many years ago uh, which was basically the school where many many of today's practitioners here in portugal studied um and that's where we met yeah that's kind of interesting that her first reading actually wasn't very good. And it, it's kind of funny because I think I, you hear that sometimes from different astrologers where, um, you know, on the one hand, it's really good to get consultations from other astrologers to see how other astrologers practice, maybe especially early in your studies. But on the other hand, sometimes the experience is not always necessarily, you know, because you don't know who you're having a consultation with. And if you're new to astrology, you don't usually have the skills to. Figure out who's like a very good or well-respected astrologer versus who isn't. So sometimes people do get a bad reading, and most of the rest of their astrological career partially becomes, you know, learning how to do a better job than that person did. In some yeah. sense, <laughs> exactly. Well, well, she she caught um, something that we had and still have to some extent in Portugal. By back then, it was very common. Is that people who call themselves astrologers were not exactly astrologers? They were, you know, tarot readers, psychics, um, whatever, uh, and sometimes not good at all. And that's what she got. So he he didn't even I think I don't think he even made her uh, a proper uh, chart. He just read a few things about her sun sign, and that's it. Uh, so, <laughs> so it was really, really, really bad one. Um, but she was she was getting into real astrology at this point and wanted to learn more. And uh, what time frame was this? This is in like the nineteen eighties when she's in her twenties or thirties. Um, probably later. I don't know. I I know that she had um, she had already um, studied by then. Um, I'm now recalling, you know, because the, the timeline is a bit bl blurred. Um, but she had already studied and she had started with a, a book that was published a long time ago uh, by a friend of ours uh, under a pseudonym at the time, uh, which was an introduction to astrology. That was basically the book that everyone here in Portugal started with. Uh, because it had the tables to calculate charts, it had all the basic instructions for interpretation. So um, she started there and she calculated her own chart. She did all the work. I think it was a, bit, a little bit off. And um, so she wasn't sure exactly of the ascendant back then um, because the tables were approximations. This was not a, a huge book, so it didn't have 
all the all day uh, all the dates but she started there and then i think at some point if i if i remember incorrectly she then seeked out an astrologer to to really understand what she was doing the first attempt didn't work very well but at the second try she found a proper astrologer who then led her to a school um and that's where she started to train you know and to organize her 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 knowledge as an astrologer yeah it's interesting that this was during a period because uh, she she was born in the mid 1960s and so the period we're talking about when she really starts getting into astrology would have been at least like the 1980s and certainly by the 1990s so it's a little bit before the rise of the personal computer and certainly before the advent of the internet where you can you know everybody nowadays can easily just go to various websites and get their chart calculated in 5 seconds but this is in a stage where you needed to calculate your chart by hand using, you know, tables and and books and and other things like that if you really wanted to practice astrology. Yeah, exactly. Um, she, as a journalist, for example, she still used a typewriter, and uh, it was during her period as a journalist that the first word processors started to show up and then the computers so she she witnessed all of that uh but the, but at that time you would calculate it by uh, by hand uh, there was no other way there weren't personal computers as we were saying so you couldn't really do much um and the problem sometimes is that uh you didn't have the tables of conversion of time zones you didn't have the um, the daylight savings so and and people sometimes make huge mistakes you know one hour two hours off of their proper chart because they didn't have the correct tables or they didn't have the information to apply them and i'm thinking of someone who's just starting with no instructions with no teacher who can orient them and people just experimented um yeah and she she went through that yeah then myself at the beginning yeah so maybe some of that background as a journalist helped her in terms of um, being able to investigate for herself, or at least look up and find resources for some of these things. Because I can see in like her later career as an academic that she, you know, has an ability to research sources and to look things up. That's really necessary for that kind of investigative work. But I can imagine already early on in her. 20s or 30s that that would have come in handy as she's trying to get into the field of astrology and figure out you know where to go and how to learn the subject yeah yeah and she was um, she had a very good sense of discernment so so she knew when things were working out and she was learning something which was significant that she didn't know or when the, there wasn't really good quality in in the sources or the people teaching so she had quite a good uh, a good way of um recognizing that and and really doing that that separation yeah okay so so eventually she found um a school and what was this school that she learned at and that's the point at which you crossed paths with her as well yeah this was the chiron school of astrology it was one of two only schools at this time um there were these two official schools let's say if official is the correct word uh, but larger let's say and then other other than that there was private uh, tutors you know there were teachers that had small groups uh but they, those were less known almost everyone would go through 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 this school um at some point or another and it was there that uh 
we both had our first training on astrology. And this was in the like early 1990s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went in, let me think, sometime around 96, 95, something around those dates. And she was more or less uh, at the same time. We were not in the same year uh, of the school because the school had at least three or four years, I don't recall, uh, of teaching. But we were not in the same year exactly, but we were very close, yeah. So this would be mid to late uh, 90s. And how long had you been studying astrology at that point yourself? Um, when when we started, um, well, I started almost from scratch. I had one year of independent study, you know, reading books and trying to understand how it worked um, before I went to a school that was recommended at the time. Yeah. Okay, and you're a little younger than she is. You're about uh, roughly a decade younger. A decade? No, ten years. Yeah, yeah, roughly, almost a decade. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, and uh, the Chiron School. So that's more, and I can sort of hear just by the name is more of a, would you say like a modern astrology or or sort of new age influenced school or like because when I th- when I think of astrology in the mid nineteen nineties and what it was like from English speaking sources when I started in like nineteen ninety nine two thousand it was more psychological and character based and Jungian and also with many sources a very strong like new age focus was it the same with the school or in Portugal at the time? Yeah, yeah. This was the school as most of astrology uh, in Portugal back then had strong French influences, so you had. Karmic astrology, you had uh, all the New Age stuff, um, the psychology, psychology of course, the Rudyar, all of that was included there. But this was a more, let's say, more towards the New Age. It depended on the, the teacher because there were several teachers, but most of them went inclined toward the New Age um, movement. So it was modern astrology, certainly. You know, with all the works we we began as, as studying astrology, so modern astrology. Yeah. Okay. And you two connected, and um, did you hit it off like right away, or did you start uh, talking or, or studying together, or what was your connection at that point when you both met at the school? Well, um, Yolanda came and talked to me at some point because I was drawing. I used to draw in my a lot of diagrams and stuff in my in my notebooks. Because you're an you're an illustrator. That's that's one of your yeah. <laughs> skills is is illustrating. Exactly. So I was drawing something, and she came and asked me how I was doing it, um, and then we talked, um, and then uh, and then I there were a lot a lot of months. And I didn't cross paths with her because we were in different time schedules at the time. And then I crossed paths with her outside the school at least twice, if I can recall correctly, you know. Uh, and we said, hi, hello. And then at some point where we had already, at least I had already finished my, my studies of astrology and I was sort of starting to go independent and on my own, starting my first readings and all of that. Um, there was this uh, mutual friend who wanted to to open a center also that could have courses, workshops. Um, and uh, she invited me 
and mentioned uh, that Elena would be there. And at the time, I didn't knew Elena that much, so I, I the, the name uh, didn't ring a bell. Um, and she told me, oh, she, she knows you. And I said, okay, perhaps I know her, but uh, then I don't know the name. And then the, when we met, there, there it was Elena. And since then, so this was 98, since, since then, we were talking, you know, and when we started to, to be closer and closer until we, we decided to get together and, well, right after, at the beginning of 99. Okay. Yeah, so that was, um, you know, over 20, 20 years ago at this point? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, um, it was 21 years uh, this year, last year. So, yeah. Right. Um, so you're both doing modern astrology and practicing. Uh, are you both starting to see clients at this point? Yes. Um, by 99, um, I was already teaching astrology. I had a smoke study group. And, um, and then Elena came in as well. And we, we, we started uh, what would become the academy at this point, our, our school. Um, and it began in 99 and we began to, 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 to teach together, um, modern astrology, of course. Um, and, but we had already some books and the notion of traditional astrology because, um, differently from the, uh, English speaking countries, we had access to books from Spain that were translated in the 50s, in the 60s, and the 70s. So a little bit earlier than the translation wave that happened in England and the United States. So there were, you know, the Arabic authors, Ezra, were, were circulating, and, and Ali ben Rajal were already circulating uh, by then, and we had access to them. Uh, Elena had some, and then a friend of ours also showed us, um, who was also an astrologer, showed us these books and we acquired them and started studying from them. Were these um, translated, were these in Spanish or were they translated into Portuguese? Spanish. Okay, so both, both of you could read Spanish? Yeah, it's, well, it's similar enough to Portuguese for, so we can understand it quite well. So, and there had been works translated into Spanish from traditional astrological texts. And Al Rigel is like one of the largest, like he has a huge compendium, which is a very massive um, text from the medieval period on uh, different branches of astrology. Yeah, yeah. Olivan Rajal has perhaps one of the most successful books of astrology in Europe. So, although we do have a Masahala and Abu Mashar and all the other Arabs, um, um, the, the complete, let's say, the complete set of, of areas of astrology were coming from, from Ali ben Rajal. And this is, I believe, the main um, link of transmission of many of the techniques that we see in the Arabs, especially in Abu Mashar, uh, coming to the, to the Latin world. And this book is translated first into Spanish directly, into Old Castilian, and then later from Old Castilian into into Latin. Um, yeah, so so the version we had was a modern edition of the Old Castilian version that was circulating at the time. So yeah, so that's where we started to learn a little bit. But 
only only when we started to learn with Robert Soller, and this was 2001, 2002, I don't recall exactly the year, but it was sometimes around 2002, um, that we, we had a more structured approach to tradition through his uh, introductory course and then through, through his diploma. Right, because if you you had access to some of those translations, but sometimes if you don't have any uh, training in traditional astrology, it can be very hard as a modern astrologer to just, to just pick up a translation of a traditional text from, in this case, Al Regil is from the 11th century, and it's been translated through a few languages before you know you're reading it in the version that you're reading, and it can be very hard to. Fully um, grasp as much of the information as you might if you if you had like an introduction to traditional first. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like all. I think the same is out for any Hellenistic or medieval sources. They're not usually, with a few exceptions, they're not easily to to start with that. You need a little bit of of um, basics to to start to to extract proper information from those sources. Um, it's only later uh, in the early modern period, um, and the, the 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 most well known is really because uh, because it's in English that you already had a more a more didactical approach to the topic um, because in the older sources, older than than early modern period, it's it's not built for our minds. You know? We we no longer think and structure knowledge that way, so it's more difficult to to to, to enter it. Yeah, sure. So you, the two of you, came across the work of Robert Zoller uh, by uh, what by two thousand one or so, or by two thousand two thousand one. Yeah, I think it was when early in the beginning of the new library uh, uh, initiative. I think. Where he was involved, Sue Ward was involved at the beginning, um, and uh, that's how how we met them both. Through his, he Zoller initially partnered up with somebody that was going to start offering his courses online, which was probably kind of an in, very innovative thing at that point, circa 2000, 2000, 2001, before online learning and online teaching had really taken off. Um, so. You came across his work because it started being promoted as where you could study through online and through like a correspondence course with him. Yeah, exactly. And um, and later we came in contact. We, we we took the course and we came in contact with him uh, and Sue Ward through through someone we knew that had an astrological journal. So so she made had made the contact and then through her uh, we got also the contacts and. Um, we did the course with Robert, and then Sue Ward was here as well teaching. They both came to to to, to Lisbon to teach. We organized uh, some workshops for them. At the time, we also organized the first um, uh, meeting, uh, astrological meeting, you know, congress in Portugal ever done. Uh, first with Portuguese um, speakers, and in the second edition, this was 2001, and then in 2002 we already had foreign um, foreign participants. Uh, I think Sue came to the 2002 um, uh, Congress, and then we still made one in 2003, and that was our last. Um, yeah, if I. 
I think I, I'm recalling the dates uh, correctly. Um, I think 2003 was our, the, our last attempt at the Congress. Um, and then by 2004, Elena had entered uh, at the university and we, we had other interests uh, to attend to. Yeah. Right. So uh, you started going through a transformation at this point in terms of your practice of astrology and your focus. And maybe if we could expand on that point a little bit, because um, you know, probably like traditional astrology has become so normalized these days that it probably seems like less of a big deal or will, you know, as time goes on further and further. But I think starting to study with Robert Zoller in particular, Zoller had been studying traditional astrology since the like 70s or 80s. And he was one of the first English-speaking astrologers that really went back and tried to revive some of the older methods of especially medieval astrology through the work of um, Guido Bonatti and other astrologers. So he took a much more um, hardline sort of traditionalist approach where he would say like the the old ways are the good ways. And um, he had a developed one of the first courses where it was kind of like a comprehensive course on how to do astrology according to the older medieval methods. What was that like for the two of you as modern astrologers to start studying traditional astrology together? Well, um, I remember being very, very exciting because uh, we had all these components that we had already heard about in our source books, but didn't know exactly how to work them out. And suddenly we had a system and I think what struck us immediately was the way that the traditional astrology organized knowledge and information and really taught you how to extract information from a chart, how to do a proper interpretation. And I think that was what hooked us on immediately because we were at the time, and I think people nowadays don't realize this as much, at that point, astrology had become something very nebulous because you had all these symbolic, archetypical, psychological approaches that almost didn't need a chart to do their things. Um, so astrology was kind of uh, dissociated from, from itself. And what most people called astrology involved very little astrology. Um, and then this new wave of traditional astrology kind of grounded this into proper knowledge and we loved that immediately, you know, when we, we still do. Um, and uh, we dedicated then to study and rec recovering all that tradition um, and um, working it out properly and really understanding how to think in terms of astrology. Because I think, and I know many people don't agree with this, but I think most of modern astrology um makes it up as it goes you know it relies too much in symbolic associations and i have nothing against symbolic associations or mythology or archetypes or whatever all of that is very interesting knowledge but it starts to to you know to fill itself with it and forgets about astrology you see when people delineate planets or talk about the symbolism of a planet they get overexcited about the symbol, they fly directly into the symbolic, and then astrology is lost in the way because you're talking about the symbol and you're not talking about 
the planet, astrologically speaking. And I think that's a sin that, that's still around very much. And uh, traditional astrology makes you go back to the real. In a sense, what Zohar said, you know, the good, the old days are the good way. So it comes back to reality. Okay, all of that is very pretty, but how does this work exactly? You know? Sure. Just in terms of being able to ground it in being able to make statements about concrete events that will or will not happen in a person's life. Yes. Yes. Even if you're just talking about psychological behavior, you know. Uh, you can do uh, a psychological analysis with traditional astrology, and it's quite a, it, it has wonderful tools to do that. I think much more in depth than than any other system of astrology that's out there. Um, but because it's more concrete, so you're talking about things that the person can immediately identify. You know, it's not just generic things that can be applied to a greater number of people. Um, they're very specific. Um, and that's the, the charm uh, <laughs> that uh, traditional astrology um, enveloped us in, and uh, we haven't left it since. Yeah, right for over twenty years now. Um, so you you would have learned natal astrology then f- primarily from Zoller, and then you also started studying with Sue Ward at this point, who specializes in horary astrology and especially in the work of William Lilly. Uh, from the 17th century, which is one of the earliest um, English-speaking astrologers, or at least that wrote the first major textbook on astrology in English in the mid-17th century. So you you started studying horary with her? Yeah. yeah. Elena dedicated herself more to horary and I to natal with Zoller, so we kind of split there a little bit at, at some time. But we were both learning at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and then we started to expand, also. So we didn't, we didn't stay there. We started. We had sources, so we started to expand our knowledge of traditional astrology. And one thing that we did was once we had the structure and the, you know, the the backbone to 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 rely on, we started to um, go to as much sources as we could. And at that time, there weren't that many available. So anything that we could read on Project Hindsight, these uh, Spanish translations, and all of that were quite helpful and gave us um, a broad range view of astrology from, let's say, the Greek-speaking uh, world to the, the later early modern, going through to that core of the medieval period. And, and that allows us to reconstruct, you know, and, and give more substance to that core of, of, um, of astrological doctrine and practice that uh, is incredibly valuable to, to work uh, and to extract really inf- real information from charts. Right. And, and through some of those Spanish translations and sources like Al Rigel, you would have had access to something that was, was unique that most um, of the just purely English-speaking world of traditional astrologers didn't have access to, because even though Ben Dykes originally eventually started translating some works from Al Rigel, that was like ten or fifteen years later. But this is a source that you you two had been working with since the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that Ali Ben Rajal has that um, you couldn't find, uh, and only recently it came up, was the the, the techniques of prognostication. 
you know, the how to work the Ferdaria, how to work the profession, the perfections, the, the soul returns, and how to combine them all. So we, we learned that early on by studying uh, Rijal's work, which is not easy, I must say, because he has a very convoluted medieval way of explaining things. So you, you really need to, to read those passages 10 times until you can extract exactly what he means. Um, and we learned a lot from that. Uh, so things that came out came out uh, recently with uh, Daiksam Abu Masar's uh, translation of the of the of the predictive work we already knew to Ali ben Rajal because Ali ben Rajal I think it's it's sourcing most of his material on on Abu Mushar and expanding a little bit more into its own ideas and opinions so we had access to that very early on um yeah okay nice that was valuable yeah that's super important and and put you ahead and still ahead which we'll get to in terms of why the two of you became leaders in the field of traditional astrology and became very influential around the world with some of your later publications once you actually started writing books on the topic. Um, so something happened though around that point where it seemed like the early phases of you two got um, swept up a little bit in a trend that I noticed started in the 1990s with astrologers. And continued into the 2000s, where some astrologers decided to go back to school in order to get advanced degrees and training um, studying the history of astrology. And I know for some of the astrologers in like the, the mid 90s, some of their motivation was to make astrology more respectable and to make inroads in academia um, for different reasons. Like there was things going on with Kepler College or, or different things like that. Um, so and there's a whole list of astrologers that went back to school. When did that process start happening for you, and how aware of you were you that other astrologers were doing that, and what were your motivations? Well, um, we knew that things were coming up. You know, you had the the bath spa um, already in place. But so that, um, that was uh, Nick Campion's program. Nick Campion's program as I was already working Kepler College as well. Um, but those were a bit inaccessible to us at the time. Um, but what happened really, and focusing on Elena, is that at one point I had been in on um, our university until '99 um, to, um, to early 2000, um, and I, I took chemistry, which I didn't appreciate that much, and then I went into geology. Right, because you're you're only in your like mid twenties at that point, right? Because you're born in '74. Yeah. Ish. Okay. So, ninety four is twenty. You know, nineteen ninety nine. You're twenty five. Yeah. Okay. And then I st I stopped and and dedicated myself to astrology. I met Elena, so that's more or less coincidental in time. Um, but at some point, Elena, who only had she had done her all her high school, and then she had uh, went she went to um, a technical. Um, she started working in the journalism and she had some technical um, course uh, uh, at some point. I don't recall or read uh, that uh, exactly the details. Um, and she and she wanted that sometimes she wanted to to go to university. Yeah, I'd read a, it was like 2004 is when she went back to get her bachelor's degree. Exactly. And uh, she went through all the exams, all the admission exams uh, and she started and she selected history. 
Um, she decided to go to history because it was a topic that she she loved, uh, and she did her her whole bachelor's degree. Um, but at her time, she wasn't thinking of academic career. She would, she just wanted to complete her her university studies. She wanted to have the her the university studies. You know, have her degree, go through that process, um, and that was it. So we weren't at the time thinking. Of of reaching where we are right now, where where we have uh, we are really researching at high level in academia. Um, the idea for her initially was to to make the course, and at the time she asked me if I wanted to go back to study again, and I said, well, not yet, not yet. At some point in the future, maybe, but not yet. And so she she completed her her degree, and and the way. It- Works with a the bachelor's degree. She was able to focus entirely on history for her bachelor's somehow. Or I, I was watching the interview with the the German astrologer, and she seemed to say she could focus just on that without doing a lot of other focus on uh, like science or math or other things like that. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's almost like a master's degree, her bachelor's at that point in some way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's history, you know. It's it's a. a so, uh, so it's a general history. Uh, she then, uh, in the the MA, she specialized in medieval history. That was one of her options. She had two. She loved two periods: um, Assyria, uh, so antiquity, uh, and um, and medieval. And uh, at the time, the 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 branch, so that the MA for the Assyrian period. Didn't uh, open that year, and she she decided on then on on medieval, or else she would have done a work on some cuneiform tables or something like that. Wow, that's a really interesting split there. Then where she could have gone uh, either way or one of two ways. Yeah, she loved languages. You know, she she knew a little bit of Egyptian. She studied a little bit of hieroglyphs. She studied a little bit of Assyrian. She knew a little Hebrew. She knew Arab a little bit again. So she was very gifted for languages, and um, she studied a lot. And she already had an, a knowledge. You know, she she could read Greek very well, although she didn't speak uh, the language fluently. But she could read and she could understand a lot. You know, so perhaps not enough to translate, but she could understand it. And um, so she had that interest. That's a major asset as a historian and also as an astrologer, being able to have that sort of facility with languages and to speak or, or at least be able to read so many different languages. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is something that it helps. It helps a lot. Uh, it helps a lot. Um, sometimes even having you know multiple ability to read multiple modern languages, because then you can access you know books in Spanish, French. German, Italian, uh, that otherwise you aren't able to read, um, and that is good. Uh, and of course, ancient languages is wonderful if you can. Yeah, and yeah, she had that gift. She didn't develop it too much, um, or as much as she would like. Um, so she took her her, um, uh, her BA in history. She finished. In four years, at the time it was four years to finish. Now there are three. Uh, they shifted when she was she was in mid uh, completing the, the 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 degree, and they the, the, you know there was this reformation on the education system. 
So she got that. She did it in four years, and then she decided to attempt the DMA, which was a big jump because that she wasn't. Um, that was not in her plans at first. Yeah. What changed, or what at some point in that four-year period, she gets really dedicated to history and and decides to make this a much more serious commitment and long-term project. If she decided to to get her master's degree in in history as well. Yeah, she decided that she could study, and that that was the point where she understood that she could um, go uh, and use, now that she had done the, the basic training of her BA, she could do an MA on the history of astrology. And this was an important key point where she, she got the idea, okay, now I can do something interesting regarding astrology, you know, and, and develop and contribute something with the history of astrology. Because at this time, since early 2000, we had been researching, uh, you know, on the libraries and on, on archives, whatever existed of astrological material. And by, by 2002, we already had a copy of the manuscript that she would be studying on the uh, on her PhD. We already knew about it, um, and uh, by reading, you know, historic uh, history books and history research here in Portugal, where they mentioned astrology, and um, and that that clicked, you know, once she had the course done, that clicked, and she said, "I'm going to do something also on astrology," and I remember she asking me, do you think that's possible? I think, yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. And there she went and, and she did her her um, her masters. That's amazing that um, you have, so in, in Portugal, you know, there are still many libraries that contain manuscripts from the Renaissance and from the medieval periods and, and sometimes older. And so the two of you since 2000 had been going in and starting to familiarize yourself with these manuscripts and with what books that survived and trying to to read them and start working with them and also probably learning some of the skills that are necessary in order to read those older source texts. Yeah. Yeah, so as we were structuring our uh, learning of traditional astrology, we were also, you know, accessing and and seeing these sources, these direct sources in Portuguese. Uh, and that was quite valuable as well to our practice because then it's not only theories in books, you can also see practice. Right. And I find that's a really interesting thing that the astrological motivation for astrologers becomes like an underlying driving force and a reason to learn ancient languages or to learn paleography, like how to read ancient manuscripts and, and handwriting and manuscripts and different skills like that. So, so the two of you must have had a really good reason then to, to have the practice of astrology to actually learn all these skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was one of what's the main drive, you know, to um, to go into academia. And um, Elena had been searching for sources uh, for some time. And when she decided to do the, the, the MA, she was quite a pioneer here in Portugal. So her MA, which was completed in 2011, was the first work, academic work, on the history of astrology in Portugal. People have had had talked about it, and you know had, there are a few papers, 
mentioning it briefly, but hers is the first um, official, let's say, history of proper history of astrology um, MA in Portugal. So she did the first work and she did it already in English. And that was uh, fortunate because uh, that opened, you know, her research to the wider world. Because if she had written in Portuguese, as it was usually at the time, um, they wouldn't encourage people to write in English. But still, nowadays it's it's, it's normal. But at the time, it wasn't still the current uh, practice. Um, and she insisted, and uh, I think she did well because then she she made known what materials we had in Portugal and by studying something that there aren't many studies on it, which is the Chronicles. Uh, how the Chronicles that, that um, put the, the king and the, the nobleman, you know, in high praising and give the all the narrative of their glorious life and effects is supported by astrological arguments. Right. So the, the master's, her master's degree was on astrology in the Portuguese royal court? Yeah, exactly. And what did that consist of, or what time period was she? What was the scope of it? That is um, late fourteenth, uh, uh, but mainly fifteenth century. So late medieval, because that, that's where we have the chronicles coming in. It's our second dynasty, and by then you have astrological narratives in the court. You know, they connect eclipses to the to the winning of wars. They connect uh, certain planetary positions to the, the great abilities of rulership of the kings, um, and so on. And you have enormous quantity of this narrative uh, uh, in the chronicles that had been ignored since. You know, People knew it existed, but it was put aside and disconsidered as you know, nonsense of the time, as they sometimes say. Um, and she proved that that was a very important part of the narrative. Right. So she was part of one of the early groups of, of um, people that were going back and looking at astrology as a legitimate um, historical subject to study in history because of the influence that it had on society and culture and science and, and philosophy and all these other things. But there hadn't been a lot of work done necessarily, especially on this specific area in Portugal yet. No, nothing. In Portugal, there was almost nothing. Um, and um, as we say today, to, to understand the Middle Ages, that was her, her focal point, uh, or even the early modern period or ancient classical world, you know, without the element of astrology, it's doing the puzzle with a big chunk of it missing, because that is part of their cosmological narrative, you know, the way they see the world. And to ignore that because it's the superstitious nonsense of the past, as older historiography used to do, it's absurd. It's completely absurd. It's like like doing the history of of, um, of Europe and ignoring uh, uh, religion, you know, Catholic religion. It wouldn't make sense. Um, but and the same the same with astrology, and you still has have. A very strong resistance in academia still today uh, in seeing that you know from older um, older historians, I think they're very resistant to it. Right. It's a it's tricky because it's still a popular thing that exists in culture and that people talk about in terms of pop astrology, and it has um, you know current 
cultural meaning and relevance, but not typically in a good way, especially from an academic context or or a scientific context for that matter, where it's usually seen as um, you know superstition and something that's looked down upon. And therefore, in a historical context, even though it's playing such a big role in history, it's something where up until recently and still to a certain extent now, historians you know look down on it still even historically and don't necessarily want to treat that as a serious subject to, to dedicating their lives to studying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the wretched sciences, you know, <laughs> as they call it. Um, uh, it it is knowledge that was expelled, you know, extracted uh, from science and from, you know, what is considered today high knowledge. Thus, if it doesn't make sense today, you're not going to study in the past. You know, why are you studying that? Which is absolute nonsense. Elena used to say uh, that um, it's easier to talk about the history of cannibalism, which is a very shocking topic whenever we speak of it. It's easier than to talk about the history of astrology. Because if you are talking about the cannibalistic practices of, I don't know, the third century before Christ somewhere, no one is assuming that you might believe that and do it yourself. If you talk about astrology, even if you're not a practitioner of astrology and you have no interest in practice, you're just studying as a subject, people will assume that you're giving it credit. You know? Right. So it's very strange. And she would, she would say this, uh, and she had a good perception of this, is uh, astrology is a subject towards which um, academia and science, uh, modern science, has a very strong emotional reaction. You know, when you try to discuss astrology, the reaction is not a logical, uh, you know, cold, uh, logical one. It's, it's an emotional reaction against it. Um, so it's a bit odd. Right, where even... Um Famous academics that have done a lot of really respectable work sometimes have been put in the position of having to defend uh, studying astrology in a historical context. You mentioned it as a as a quote unquote a wretched subject, which is you know referring to uh, a famous paper or article in 1951 from Otto Neugebauer titled "The Study of Wretched Subjects," where he had to respond to this other. Historian that kind of complained that people were doing historical work on the history of astrology. Yeah, Sarton, yeah. George Sarton, which is one of the monoliths of, of the history of science. And um, Nugabauer goes against him. Yeah, it's quite an interesting. It's, it's one of the most famous papers in the history of astrology and mathematics perhaps, but history of astrology, and it's only one page length, you know. <laughs> right. It's very concise, but it's also very pointed and very powerful, and it set kind of a almost like a standard, it seemed like, for later historians to be able to defend um, the study of this subject as a legitimate subject for history because of the influence that astrology exerted over uh, all other areas of society and culture and history. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And um, and now, now that we're talking about this, I also this reminds me that um, 
One of also the motivators for we begin for our start studying astrology in academia was um, a two thousand four conference in in Amsterdam of horoscopes and history, uh, which Zoller and uh, and a lot of the of the major names in is still in in current um, history of um, of astrology. Uh, which I attended. Elena, at the time, we decided one of us will go, and I was the one who had the the chance of going there, and um, and it was very interesting. And it was a very interesting moment to see it apply to historical examples, um, and it was a, a wonderful conference. Uh, I loved it. And when Elena, at the end of that year, decided to do her MA. I suggested her to contact uh, one of the organizers, Koku von Stukrat, to be her co-supervisor because um, when she um, proposed this topic, the first reaction was a bit negative. Uh, her her the, her supervisor to be um, was a bit apprehensive with the topic didn't know what to do with it. She wasn't a specialist at all on it. There weren't any uh, here in Portugal. Um, and what she said to Elena is, okay, uh, please bring me sources. Bring me a layout, your plan, what sources you're going to use. And Elena did the homework and she had already a lot of things aligned. And she went there and she said to her, okay, I'm convinced. We, I think you have mat enough material to, to go through. And she, she herself says this and tells this, this story, how Elena changed uh, her perspective on the topic. And, and then she got her as a, a supervisor. And then Koku von Struckrat was her co-supervisor. Um, and he was, he's not exactly an historian of astrology, but he, he has, dealt with in the context of history of religion he has dealt with astrology enough to know exactly um how to you know uh evaluate someone's work in that field so he was um he was a good asset also to her work you know as a supervisor so that's a really major turning point then that conference the horoscopes and history conference that happened in 2004 and i guess that makes a lot of sense because that was a big deal because it was probably one of the first times a conference had been put together like that where um, a group of different international scholars on the history of astrology got together to present papers on the topic. And they actually, that one was interesting because I, I heard about it and I, Demetra George attended it and she invited me to go. I was only like a year into my Kepler studies though and couldn't attend, but um, it had this amazing lineup of scholars and they also invited two. Uh, astrologers who also had a background in the history of astrology, which is Robert Zoller and James Holden. Um, they did end up publishing a collection of papers afterwards. I think it came out in 2005 from that conference, which was titled Horoscopes and Public Spheres, um, but they didn't end up publishing uh, Holden's paper or Zoller's paper, um, but it was at least an interesting crossing point between work on the history of astrology and also a little bit of involvement from astrologers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a key point. Though there's a whole lot of little stories surrounding I mean, uh, that, that I mean, conference. Anything anything you can because I've heard a little bit, because I heard from like Zoller's perspective that his talk didn't go well. 
uh, when I spent like a year living with him a couple few years later when he was at Project Hindsight. But I know just thinking of that lineup that you have like James Holden there presenting a paper, you have Robert Solers, two astrologers, but also major academics such as David Pingree was at that conference. And that would have been one of his last events where he presented a, a paper or, or published a paper. I think he ended up with a paper in that combination, that collection. Um, so that's amazing because he, I think, passed away maybe a year or two later in 2005, 2006. Yeah, it was, a little, it was 2005, I think, the year after. Um, yeah, and I, I still I met him uh, and exchanged a few words with him. It was very nice, wow. a very nice man. Yeah, because he was he was the towering figure in work on the history of astrology in the late 20th century, just in terms of his output. And he was a polyglot that knew a, like a dozen ancient languages as well as mo several modern ones. Um, and who else was at that conference? Let me think. There were several people. Um, so you had Pingree, you had uh, Zoller, uh, James Holden, you had uh, Nick Campion was also there, you have Patrick Curry. And I know the three main organizers were Koku Van Stuckred, Daryl Rutkin, and Gunther Ostman, right? Yeah, Gunther Ostman was there. Daryl, I'm not sure if he was there. I don't remember him there, but he might have been. I don't recall. Um, who else was there? Uh, Stephen Eileen was there as well. Um, and several others whose names I, I cannot recall at this time, but they are part of that. Uh, they altered several papers on those books. There was also this um, this historian who talked about Rome and some Roman charts. Uh, Wolfgang Hubner? Hubner was there as well, yes. Uh, but it wasn't Hubner, it was a, a lady. Uh, she, I think she, she passed away uh, as well. I don't recall her name. Yeah, I've got the collection of um, the contents of the published papers. Yeah. Joseph Henriette Abri. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So she was a major historian on um, the history of, or did some major work on the history of astrology. Um, yeah, so that's a major conference, and you you made a choice, and you ended up being the one to attend. But then Helena did decide to um, go back to school later that year. Did that influence that at all, or had she already been trending in that direction? She already had been trending because we had just published before the conference. We had just published uh, one of our first research books, which was called um, Royal Astrology, translating the title in in from Portuguese, which was a collection of charts of Portuguese kings. Wow, okay. And for that, we needed to go to not only the chronicles, but also to the archives. And we had to research the archives for the, the you know, where they had the, the, the description of the birth of the, of the princes. Um, and we ended up almost having all of them. And that was published in early 2004. And then, we, I went to the conference after that. The book had already been published, so so there were a lot of things already happening back then that were motivating um, us to study further, especially her because she was already on track at that time, um, and so that was the main motivation for her for her um, degree and then the MA because the, she. Uh, she started in 2004, um, and by 2010 she was doing her MA, 
Uh, and that was the time when I suggested, why don't you contact Kokaku von Stukrat? Because I, I recalled him from the conference. Why don't you, you contact him? Perhaps he can be your supervisor. And he was. You know, he invited her to go to... What's the name? It wasn't Amsterdam. It was that um, up north in Holland. Oh, the name escapes. I'm terrible with names. But it's a big university up north, very famous, where John North uh, lectured for many years. Um, You're not talking about the Warburg? No, not the Warburg. He he was on, on in Holland. Uh, it, it'll, it'll come to me. Uh, <laughs> and um, and he, she went there and presented her project uh, for a group of teachers and to to Koku von Sukrat and. Um, he accepted to be her, her co-supervisor, which was very nice and gave a lot of substance to, to her work, you know, and, and also motivated her um, to really do a good work. So, and he was one of her, um, one of her advisors and she had two advisors for her master's, right? Yeah, exactly. A Portuguese one. Who was one. the second? The second was uh, Professor Maria de Lourdes Rosa. She studies um, her her line of studies mainly um, medieval documentation and archives. She now has a, a very uh, important ERC project exactly on that. You know the archives of families and legacies of families throughout the medieval period to the early modern, and that's her specialty. Um, and she had been a teacher of Elena's, one of the teachers of the of the of the BA. So so. She went with her. She liked her a lot. Uh, I think that there was mutual uh, agreement between them, you know, in terms of uh, the of talking. She liked her as a as a teacher, and she liked Elena as a pupil. So, so she was the main supervisor, and then um, Koku was a second supervisor. Okay, I want I want to ask more about this, but I just remembered something an anecdote because you mentioned the. 2004 conference and there being stories. Um, I heard that Zoller presented kind of a weird paper, and, and I didn't mean to say earlier that they were left out and that was negative. Like maybe there's a reason that some of the papers didn't end up in the final compilation, but um, the way that he had conveyed the story was something like he gave a, a paper saying that astrology was the only true way of. Knowledge or knowing something for sure, like something to that effect, that sounded like a very uh, not like academic position to take at an academic conference. Yeah, now that I've been in academia for some time, you know, his paper had a lot of problems. The first one and most important one, he prepared an hour and a half length paper. To what was supposed to be a 45-45 minute presentation, so he was completely out of um, of proportion, you know. And I don't know, I don't know if he conf was confused about the time on duration, or if he thought that he would be allowed to speak for that time. But these conferences are very strict because everyone has to talk, and you have to obey, you know, the time limit. That happens when any. Conference. Yeah. There's just so many people, that, and there's so limited time that in order to get them all in, you have to have very strict time limits. Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the first problems, you know, um, because he had to interrupt the paper 
in half. Okay. So he couldn't do the whole thing. It was impossible. No. Um, that was one of the things. The other was the argument he was putting forth. Um, he was arguing that, so along the lines of what you're talking, that astrology could be used as a tool to uncover unknown historical events. Okay. So astrology as a method for historical research itself. And that caused a lot of reaction. Yeah, because that's while that's something an astrologer might take for granted or that astrologers do frequently, that's not a like acceptable academic historical practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's like extracting, as I always sometimes say for just as a joke, uh, doing uh, historical interviews with a Ouija board, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> you can't say something like that, you know, and expect a, a favorable reaction. Um, and this is as a history of astrology uh, conference. It's not, it's not an astrological conference. Yeah, and that's a huge difference there. Uh, while, for example, Holden's paper was perfectly um, okay, and no one had had no reaction at all in terms of negative. Um, I don't think it was published. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I think. What he did was he more or less recycled something that he had already written, you know. Um, so he wasn't adding anything new. He was just making a compilation of stuff he had already published on the horoscopic astrology book, I think. Uh, uh, so um, that's probably the why it didn't end up being published. I'm not sure. Um, but I but I know he, he his relationship with the organizers and all was very cordial. There was never anything, you know, problematic with him. The problem was just solar, really. Yeah, uh, I think Holden's paper was titled "What Will Happen Next," and because um, he sent me this paper, and I think we actually had him present it at um, an AFA conference in 2011 or so, or maybe it was a little bit later that Ben and Demetra and I did on traditional astrology, and it was one of his last talks. Was just. You know, presenting this paper that was kind of an overview of the history of astrology and especially ancient astrology. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's the paper in case anybody wants it. Um, so, yeah, so Zoller's didn't go over well. Well, that's just an interesting um, sort of cross point between astrologers doing some work on the history of astrology and academics that are starting to do work on the history of astrology. Especially relative to where the direction that you and Helena would end up going, which ended up um, more and more going more in the academic direction. Well, I mean, it was both because um, I think a few years later you published your first major instructional book in two thousand seven, right? Yeah, yeah. So by two thousand and four, let me think, we were already starting to write that book. Because that book took three years to write, um, and it was out by two thousand and seven. So you felt like by two thousand four that you knew enough about traditional astrology and you'd been practicing it long enough that the two of you decided to start writing an instructional manual that's like an introduction to astrology from a traditional standpoint. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so we we spent three years researching and 
carefully, you know, planning, how do you explain this to someone that doesn't know a thing about astrology? That was quite a challenge. Yeah. Especially how to begin the book. Because there literally were not any books like that up to that point, because even though there'd been earlier astrologers that had gotten into traditional astrology or had started lecturing and teaching on traditional astrology, like you know, Zoller, Zoller only had his course, which was more of a private publication in some ways. It wasn't like a published um, book that was like in bookstores. And others like um, you know, Project Hindsight had private little translations and taught courses, but they never published really a, a big book that was an introduction to astrology. And even somebody like Robert Hand ended up going back to school, which sort of preempted him from doing that and publishing a book. So yours was one of the first, and um, you published it in 2007. And what was the Portuguese title? Um, Tratado das Esferas, so the treatise on the spheres, which at the time the the English publisher didn't thought it was right for the uh, for the English language, so it it became on the heavenly spheres for the English version. Yeah, okay, which came out yeah, which came out in 2010. Okay, so on the heavenly spheres is the name of the English translation that was published by the American Federation of Astrologers in 2010, and that became a really influential book. I have to say, over the past ten years, and um, that was actually translated. Or Maria Mateus helped with that translation to help you translate it into English, right? Yeah, she she did basically all of it. She was. Fabulous, you know, her work was fabulous. She translated basically the whole thing. Uh, so there is no credit to her in the book, unfortunately, for some reason, but she should be credited. She is the translator of that book and she did a wonderful job because it is a large book. Um, and uh, I think she, she should be credited uh, for all the help she gave us. Yeah. Um- that was one of the books that was published during this almost like ten-year period, where the AFA there was a change in leadership, and one of the things that they started doing is they started publishing a lot of books, including all of James Holden's books, where he'd been translating all these texts for years, and then he finally um, they published them all of a sudden in this very short span of time in the last decade of his life. Um, but your book was also one of the ones that they published, and there were some. Really good things about that that put it into circulation, but then there was sometimes some some drawbacks about certain things that you might have done differently. And I think you did do differently in the Portuguese version, or, or and, and are planning on doing a revised version of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. At some point uh, we were planning that, and at some point we'll do that. And there's more to come out. We have the draft of a, a second book, uh, which will could continue uh, this one. Um, let's see how it goes. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a very pleasant surprise for us, and I, I remember Elena saying this lots of times that the book had the impact that it had, because here in Portugal, at the time he was published, it didn't have a very good reception. Yeah, in two thousand seven, I, I can't imagine it would have, because it would have been overwhelming. There has there wasn't a, an appetite for traditional astrology no, yet, not at all, not at all. And there was at the beginning. Um, 
a very strong resistance to traditional astrology. Um, sometimes very uh, aggressive from modern astrologers, not here in Portugal, but also uh, abroad. Um, I think nowadays many astrologers, many mainstream astrologers that sort of, you know, swallowed uh, traditional astrology as something they have to incorporate or at least recognize and talk about in their in their practice, were very, very aggressive um, towards traditional astrology, especially if you stop using the, the, the so-called modern planets. Right. Yeah, that was a big sticking point is in the book, you, the two of you outline a system of astrology that just uses the seven traditional planets. And this is drawn from, if you're writing it from 2004 to 2007, from those especially medieval and uh, to some extent the Renaissance sources like Lily and the sort of synthesis that the two of you had put together at that point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also stuff that we had learned by reading manuscripts, you know, where you have practical examples and suddenly, okay, that's how, how they apply it and that's very valuable. Um, so yeah, so we decided to do a book. And one of the things that we decided very early on, at first the idea, this was my idea, was to do a small book, you know, with just uh, sort of a sort of a glossary, not exactly glossary, a small book, just outlining the main principles of, of um, traditional astrology. But then Elena was more of the opinion that it should be larger, it should be more explanatory, it should have include much more. And um, that's the, the version that uh, came out. She was more, more, more ambitious. Yeah, she was. She said, "No, we should do. We should do it bigger, not just a simple thing, but much, much bigger with, with good explaining every single little bit of of um, of the doctrine of how it's applied, everything, and that's what it came. And it's a synthesis. Um, my idea of traditional astrology, and my well, when I say my idea, I say our idea was always to create a synthesis. Um, there are people who are period specific or author specific." Um, for example, Sue Ward is an example of this. Uh, she 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 works within a very concise, structured uh, methodology, and that's her her line of approach. Um, uh, we were of the idea that you, what you need to understand is what is the core principles that do not change throughout time, and that are always consistent, and that is your go-to for any kind of traditional practice. And so that was one of the ideas or driving forces behind the book is to go to those things which are really, really important and emphasize them. Um, and also we wanted to write something that didn't rely on constantly quoting sources from the past. Because most of the books that existed then, and we, we were coming from Zoller's work and he's constantly quoting Bonatti, which is helpful, but we wanted a book that just explains the doctrine without, with, with no footnotes, not keep going, keep going back to sources, you know, just outline the principles. And then, then you go to the sources once you have them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just looking at the, the book on Amazon, because it has uh, like a hundred and what, 34 reviews. And if you open up the table of contents, like you really get a sense for 
the scope of the book, which is which is amazing, uh, in giving an overview of the history of astrology and going into um, the broader, like philosophical and cosmological principles underlying traditional astrology, and then really breaking down all of the traditional concepts underlying an astrological chart in terms of planets, uh, the signs of the zodiac, the the essential dignities, the houses, aspects, and and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a major undertaking. And the final book here is almost 300 pages. It looks like it's like 278 or so. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't initially received super well in um, in Portugal. Did it take off eventually at some point later on? It did, it did. Uh, nowadays, it's impossible to find the, the first edition. And for some years, it was almost impossible to find it. Uh, and then we decided to do a second edition uh, at some point, and now it's on the third revised edition. Um, at this point, uh, that can be found in Amazon. But um, now it's, it's it's it sells. It's it's one of the book people have, and and a lot of things. And we I think we talked about this before in in, in the podcast. People are knowing the book from its English version. You sometimes have Portuguese people who are introduced to the book in English. So they are taking, for example, courses with, with um, uh, tutors outside of Portugal who then recommend a book that is written by two Portuguese. And people, wow, I didn't know that existed. Um, and it's, a, it's funny, you know, it comes around. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, and I remember when we spoke the first time in the podcast um, in 2018, uh, Elena was quite uh, moved when you told us that uh, it had been a very it has been an influential book um, in in today's uh, learning of astrology. She she was she was very moved um, by that because um, it's good, you know, it's good to know that the work is being read, accepted, and and there is a contribution, you know, to to the learning of astrology, because yeah. that was something that we always had in our minds, you know, contribute to better astrology, you know, to to really consolidate the knowledge of astrology. Yeah, well, I mean, I was always aware of it since 2010. I actually I remember being at a United Astrology conference in Denver in 2008, and. Um, I was going to meet with the president, the head of the AFA, or maybe she wasn't the president, but Chris Risky, who was, and I, I saw her actually right before I had my meeting with her, sitting and talking to Maria Mateus, um, who was handing over the manuscript for the translation and kind of pitching the book in some sense. And then it was published with them two years later. Um, but I was always aware of the book in the early. 2010s, uh, because it was the only book for such a long time that gave an introduction to traditional astrology that I could refer that was understandable and accessible and also not just comprehensive, but also um, incredibly well illustrated with diagrams from, from your illustrations and stuff. So I actually I started putting out, I put out like a top 10 six beginner astrology books list in 2017 on my YouTube channel when I started doing this channel and actually trying to put um, videos out once I finished writing my book in early 2017, and your book was on that that list actually. And I think that's one of the reasons um, 
because it's been on my list of the best books, um, it's sort of influenced then some of the younger generations of astrologers where there's less resistance to traditional astrology compared to um, some of the older generations where they were more used to doing it a certain way for enough decades that they're not as inclined to change you know, midstream. Um, but it's become very popular with the younger generations. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'm surprised to see it in the, in these top tens. Yeah. I remember seeing yours, and then um, I've seen a few uh, few months ago. And it appears in top five, you know, uh, books that people used in their learning process, and it's it's wonderful to have that feedback, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah I have some like um, B roll footage that I shot of it, like somewhere that I'll need to put <laughs> oh, up. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so uh, that was a major influence in terms of the history of the astrological community. And I remember in the late 2000s, the two of you also were launching a bunch of other projects, including the Tradition Journal, which was a journal that ran for four issues um, that was for astrologers, but it was meant to be a very, it was a very well designed and very high level um, sort of discussions and articles about astrology. And you also had a, a website for that where you were running different projects. Like at one point, there was like a house division research project and other things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had the site, the website. We had the tradition, which was those four issues that are now available uh, online. Um, and we have also the tradition library, which um, had uh, original texts and transcriptions of texts, mainly early modern sources. That was uh, mainly the work of Sue Ward and Peter Stockinger, uh, and they published a lot of interesting uh, sources on, on Lily's period, Lily or Lily's period, which was quite interesting. Um, and that run as a charity. So um, the profits of all those sales went exclusively towards um, animal welfare. And we managed to help uh, a large group of uh, animals at the, at the time with, the, with the, the money gathered from the sale of the tradition. And it, well, that was quite, quite nice. Right. That was a major um, thing that was very important to both you and Helena was um, deeply caring about uh, about animals and doing charity work. Yeah, especially for her. She was very driven to animal welfare, you know, animal um, recognition of sentient, sentient, uh, uh, sentiency in animals. Um, and she was a very active member of uh, rescue um, groups, uh, groups uh, that promoted animal well-being. Um, she was not, she, she had, she was an act, she would go to places, she would do things, but she was always in the background, you know, connecting people, giving ideas, giving support, and um, she has been missed terribly um, because people would search her for advice. Uh, and how to deal with difficult situations, and uh, so when 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 she passed away, I created a fund uh, to. So the the idea initial was um, Elena never liked to to receive flowers because that means the flower would die. You know, a plant was something a potted plant. It was okay, but not for flowers. So I told people not to to 
to hand out flowers for her, not to buy flowers, but to contribute to this fund. Uh, and fortunately, the fund has been working, um, and um, we have been able to help, you know, a lot. It's not something huge, but it's to help associations that uh, sometimes uh, have difficulty in neutering animals or paying vet bills of difficult cases so we we lend help as as much as we can to with that yeah what's the url of the website for that um well it's in portuguese is fundo elena avlar uh yeah fundo elena avlar at wibbly.com so this was a page i i built up very very rapidly that photo that black and white photo is of elena in her journalist years and she did a lot of pieces on animals and that's her on the zoo petting wow. tigers there's a lot of pictures of her you know with lion cubs uh, on her lap and uh, dolphins uh, she has quite a collection and i thought this was one interesting that's great and the tigers yeah and this was a page i did very quickly to to promote the fund so if people want to contribute whatever they they want and they can uh i can guarantee that it's going to be used to help whatever comes by you know in terms of assistance food vet bills mainly you know uh, for associations that sometimes struggle with with the amount of animals that uh, are abandoned or or get uh, run over or something like that you know yeah, I, I remember that as a really notable thing when you two were doing all of your astrological work. Just that um, the funds were be, being donated for, I think it was for like the subscriptions for the tradition journal were being donated to different animal causes. Yeah, exactly. We helped. I remember one in particular was um, we helped two that I recall was one large animal shelter in Algarve in the south of Portugal. And which it was this English uh, lady who ran that, and she she picked up strays and abandoned dogs, and then tried to rehome them, most of them outside of Portugal, and she did an amazing job. And so we contribute for her to you know pay bills, be able to take the animals to the vet, and go have funds to go over all that that process, you know, and that you spend money getting the licenses and everything. And there was also a charity in, in another Portuguese town, Evora, which has done an amazing work in recovering animals, you know, cats and dogs. And um, they also got a big chunk to help them recover from all the, the vet bills again, which is usually the problem for these associations, which are basically run by the people, you know, by the group. Uh, there's very little um, official assistance here in Portugal for, for those cases. Nowadays it's getting better, but still, right. A lot of the costs come out from the people, of the volunteers, you know, that work with this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think at this point we reach a crossroads, from my understanding of Helena's story and, and your story to some extent as well. Where um, even though you, from my perspective, were very prominent at the astrological community around the late. 2000s and early 2010s through you know publishing that book and through um, starting to publish a, a journal for astrologers that went through I think four volumes of the tradition journal as well as a website and an online library 
Um, at that point, there was a shift where the two of you kind of disappeared, at least from my perspective, uh, from the astrological community. And I would realize later when you sort of reemerged that what happened is that the two of you really went deep into your academic studies at this point. And for her, that would have been the point where she started working on her, uh, working on getting a PhD and doing a PhD thesis. Yeah, yeah, that coincides. Well, it coincided with her masters. Okay, because this was the the tradition stopped being published in two thousand ten or two thousand eleven. I don't recall exactly. That was when I then started to to go again into into the university, and Elena was finishing at that time her MA. So. Um, when both of us uh, were at the university, it became a little hard to to maintain um, the publications and and especially the the tradition. The tradition also suffered from something which was um, there weren't enough people, you know, producing uh, uh, a traditional work uh, to feed the tradition. Uh, uh, so it so it could maintain the rhythm, so we decided to stop because it was becoming too strenuous, and we had to write also pieces, you know, just to keep the the journal um, in work in functioning. So we decided, and then the traditional library came in that sort of replaced that for a while. Um, but at that time, I was starting my 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 BA my third attempt at uh, <laughs> at the university um i went to her art history uh and then uh she was doing her um, finishing her ma and then going to the phd so for her phd she actually went to the warburg institute um in london which is a very famous institution um that was started almost a century ago for studying um, topics that are normally a little bit outside of um, the scope of like the history, hi typical history topics, right? Yeah, exactly. She she asked for advice at the time, you know, where she could do a PhD on astrology because she could have done it in Portugal, but there wasn't really uh, a line of those studies here. So, um, so a lot of our um, friends and teachers at the time advised her. To, to contact uh, the Warburg Institute, and um, she did. Um, and uh, Charles Burnett um, accepted to, to, to talk to her and to, to look at her material and to consider her as a possible um, student under his, um, uh, under his supervision. Um, so she went there, and they got along very well. Uh, he liked the, the topic. He thought the topic uh, was promising. And at this time, and th this was where it gets interesting, at, th at this time, Elena wanted to do something on astrology, but she wasn't sure exactly how to approach it, what to do exactly. There were many possibilities. And then I remembered this uh, manuscript that we had found in the National Archive long, long, long ago. And we had reached that by reading a, it was Elena who found it, by reading a, a footnote on a, a work by a Portuguese historian who said something like, um, this manuscript contains uh, charts, astrological charts. At the end, it was tables, and he was more interested in the tables. And then astrological charts that could have been done for any date or time. 
which was sort of an absurd um, remark to be done. And we were very curious, wait a minute, horoscopes? Um, so we went to see the manuscript and after flicking through, and this was a microfilm, uh, um, to many, many screens of tables, which are interesting in themselves, but you know, there's a limited interest to, to, to seeing tables. Um, uh, suddenly, horoscopes and charts starting to appear. And we were amazed at the amount of, of, of material that was there. And I remember we jumping up and down almost in the library, you know, wow, fabulous, because there was no record of anything like that in, in the Portuguese archives by that time. Um, and we got a copy and we kept that for a number of years. Um, uh, we, we couldn't read it at first because this was in Latin and uh, we didn't have enough paleography to, to read it. Uh, and as time progressed, we learned how to read it. Uh, and so I suggested to Elena, why don't you do try this one? This one has enough material there to make us to be, become a start for doing something, a connection you know, between perhaps Portugal, France, what's happening here, how did the manuscript came to be, etc. And so she advanced with that with that project. So the manuscript is actually available online from, uh, is it from the Portuguese library that actually has it in in Lisbon? It's the National Archive in Lisbon. Yeah. Okay. So and it's this old manuscript, and it's written. So this is from the 15th century. So this is before, you know, the printing press, and this is like the private or one of the private notebooks of some astrologer who wrote in his own hand, and it's written in Latin. Yeah, it's an amazing manuscript because um, he copied by hand a set of tables that he was using himself. Okay. Here this browser is. isn't, the, 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 this archive browser is not very good. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. MS 1711. There you have that. That's the table part. There are several pages of tables which he was using in his practice with the positions of the planets. And then he has a collection of horoscopes at the very end of the manuscript of famous people of France, you know, the rich and the famous <laughs> celebrities of France and of 15th century France at that time, the kings, the dukes, you know, the major political figures. And uh, surprisingly, his own children and family and people he knew probably, um, which is amazing because um, what Helena later found out is that this is the largest known collection before the early modern period. So the, it's the earliest, larger, earliest collection of charts known. There's nothing as big at the, this period, as large. So from prior to the 17th century, it's the largest collection of charts? 16, because by the 16th century, you have those collections by Cardano and, and, and authors of that period you know, that published these collections of famous nativities. Um, that becomes a genre on itself in the printed version. This is the earliest collection. You know. And could you, sh could you show um, like an image from Helena's book of one of the charts. Did we pull up a page for that earlier? Do you have one that you could 
show just to give people watching the video version just an idea of what these charts looking like. I'm trying to click through it in the manuscript, but it's kind of slow loading on this website. Yeah, let me let me get the good one. Like this one does have, um, for example, one of the almanacs that lists planetary positions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the almanac. So there you have the Sun, Moon, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Mercury, and the North Node. That is not the South Node, but the North Node. Uh, right. I posted this on an image from her book on Twitter. I was surprised nobody noticed that the everyone commented on the other glyphs, and everyone thought it was really interesting seeing how the symbols were. Some of them were the same as now, but some of them were very different. But one everybody overlooked so far is that the nodes are, are reversed from what they usually are in modern yeah, astrology. Exactly, because it, it depends on how you see north, because nowadays we tend to see north as up, because we, we're used to that position in the charts. But if you think about it, for a long time, and astrologically, the north is down, because in the northern hemisphere, we're looking at south when we're talking about the MC and the culmination point of the planets. So the south node is represented going up, so south, while the north node is represented going north, so okay. down. And that's very tricky. You need to be very careful. Yeah, here it is, the table. Yeah. So this is a table from Helena's book, and it shows uh, all the symbols for the signs of the zodiac and the planets, and then the aspects and other things. And some of them look you know, very similar or exactly the same as the the symbols today. Like Aries is very close, Gemini and Cancer are very close. Yeah. Uh, but Leo, there's some of yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, the, the I think the strangest one is Taurus, which looks like Scorpio. Right. And and it looks very very close to Scorpio. It's just got one little leg that's in addition that sets it apart. Exactly. It's it's the only way to set them apart is um, the number of legs. So Taurus has more. For some reason, um, Sagittarius is also odd because that's a very, very, very stylized arrow, and Capricorn, um, uh, which is it's drawn strange, strangely from what we're used to. Yeah, and then the symbol for Mars looks like the modern symbol for Sagittarius. Exactly. And yeah. The symbols for Saturn and Jupiter just look completely different. Yeah, the symbol for Saturn is very close to the symbol of Capricorn that we have now. You know, it goes that mm. that kind That's of thing, and then it crosses it. It's very close to 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 the symbol of the actual symbol for Capricorn, and that's a very common symbol for Saturn uh, during the Middle Ages. And Jupiter, it's 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 the same symbol we use now, but instead of having the 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 curve outwards, it's inwards. So it's more or less the same symbol, but with an extra leg and crossed. Yeah. Right. And then most of the aspects are very similar. The sextile is the only one that's odd because it looks like a, a hashtag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it looks like the cardinal glyph. Uh, it's strange. I don't know why he didn't do the star. I have no idea. And then there's the nodes. Yeah, the nodes are reversed. Which is something people should pay attention when they're looking at, especially medieval charts. By the early modern period, that's not longer an issue, but earlier than that, it is because they're reversed. For example, the Arabs are uh, the Arabs' cartography has south, south, south is pointing upwards. 
Okay. Like in a, in a, in an astrological chart. So the node is also reversed. So we need to be attentive to that. So this is something that that Helena and you had to learn was um, how to read the symbols within the context of their time period and how to learn paleography, which is like the reading the handwriting of authors who are writing in manuscripts prior to the inventing of the printing press. Exactly, which sometimes is abbreviated and there's methodologies of abbreviation specific uh, to, to certain periods. So you need to know that. And if you don't, it, you look at that and it looks like gibberish. You know, uh, but then once you learn, you can always learn. You can always read something, even if it's a, a, tough, a tough hand. Um, but you can always read something. Yeah, once you cross that frontier. So the first part of the book contains a bunch of tables of um, planetary positions, sort of like an, an ephemeris for a certain range of years. But then the end of the book contains a bunch of. Um, charts for different different types of astrological charts. Yeah, it has uh, natal most mostly natal charts, uh, but it has some some coronation charts and what they would call in the old days the entrance of the king in the city because that would be ceremonial something important. Once the king entered the city, that would mark a certain power that the king would acquire. So that was also a chart that uh, you see uh, erected, and you see that a lot in old elective sources, uh, sections for elections, where to how to enter a city, and that's usually for to be used in this kind of um, of situation where the king or the nobleman or whoever has power is going to assume power over that city. Mm. Okay. So that's the ascension to the throne, basically, or ascension chart, sort of. Yeah, yeah, it's like an equivalent. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, do you want to show an image of one of the charts? Yeah. Let me, let me just pick a good one, one that has enough information on the website, which I'll, I think I'll put a link to in the description on the podcast website. It's like you can click through, but I'm just having a hard time making it. Um, big enough to read too much, but you can see these diamond-shaped yeah. charts. Was his style? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you find one? Yeah, I did. Okay, here you go. Okay, let me share that. Um, this is a good one. Okay. Wow. Okay, so this is a it's a diamond-shaped chart, and then it has notes uh, written around the edges of of something yeah exactly for he says uh for example he says at fuit die saturni ora solis al mutem saturni so uh, the day of saturn the hour of saturn and saturn was the almutin and then you can see the calculation of the almutin here in the side where he's adding the different uh qualities the different dignities that the plant has, and Saturn pops up with the greatest number of dignities. Okay, so he's he's calculating the the strongest or the most powerful planet in the chart, which is the the Almutin or the I guess Bendix calls it the victor of the chart. Yeah, yeah, the Almutin, the lord of the geniture, the lord of the figure, 
right. there are many names for for this. Um, and here, then, in this small bracket, you have the calculation of longevity, in which he says that moon is a leg. And uh, if I if I'm not mistaken, in this case, he says the moon is both the e-leg and the alcocodum of the chart. And this is because the moon is exalted, as it's in Taurus. So you see Gemini here. Uh, so the, the moon is in Taurus. So because it's exalted, is one of the rules that you find uh, in most sources with the longevity is that the moon, when it, or the sun, if they are in their own exaltations, they can be their own uh, alcocodum. So. Uh, Okay, so he's calculating things like the overall ruler of the chart, but then he's also trying to calculate different points to use for things like longevity or the length of life calculation. Yeah, exactly. Here we have the year of the chart. So, um, 1423, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, exactly. Okay, um, and where's the ascendant in this uh, diamond chart? It's here. So this is the first house. So the ascendant degree is here on this. On the cusp. left. Yeah. So it's going to be uh, uh, 19 degrees, 10 minutes of Sagittarius. Got it. Okay. Um, and then we can see some of the symbols for the planets. And he's written the degrees and the minutes next to most, most of them. Yeah. Let me amplify this a little bit more so we can see it easily. So you can see, and this is important. Um, um, you see, for example, here, Pars Fortune, so the part of fortune here. Um, here you see um, Vultur Cadence, Vultur Volens, so, so these are fixed stars. Um, this is the part of the king and, and the kingdom. Um, what, does he, what does he have here? Um, the part of death here. Okay, so this he's calculating is the part of death according to Hermes. So pars mortem secundum hermetem. Mm. <laughs> um, Cor scorpi, so the anta um, Antares. Right, the heart of the scorpion. The heart of the scorpion. And then he does this very interesting thing, which is he highlights in red planets that for some reason he thought were important. Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't do a delineation of the chart, so we don't know exactly why he's selecting these particular uh, planets. But he sometimes does that. He highlights, and you see that a lot in 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 his workbooks. You know, they highlight. It's like you're looking at the chart. Imagine today the, the equivalent is you're going to have a consultation. You print out the chart. You have the page there, and you just with a pencil or with a pen, you just highlight and mark things that you you think are significant. Um, so he's doing the same. Okay. So let's back up then and tell the story about this. Um, so Helena, uh, 10 years earlier in the early 2000s, the two of you had come across this um, notebook, this text that was anonymous in the library in Lisbon. But then 10 years later in the early 2010s, when she's starting to think about um, what to do her PhD thesis on, she, that's when there's a decision to focus on this text. And she ends up going to the Warburg Institute and working with um, Charles Burnett, who 
to give some context, is probably the leading scholar on leading historian on medieval astrology in the world, uh, especially at this point, definitely, but especially after the death of David Pingree in 2005 or 2006. It seems like Burnett is the, the lead, one of the leading historians on astrology in general in the world. Yeah, um, so, yeah. so she's studying with him, which is a major um, deal just in and of itself. But then she decides to start focusing on this text that the two of you had only sort of looked at a little bit earlier. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we did we, we did transcribe most of the charts, so the, the chart the charts are transcribed in the in the. In her in her book are already uh, things that we did early on uh, to have a more clear view of the of the of the chart, and uh, she does. And so what she does is at the time she applies for a grant uh, from the Portuguese government, you know, um, and at first she didn't obtain it to do to a clerical error, which is the most frustrating thing that can happen, right? Uh, you know. You're almost there. The evaluation is positive, but then there's a mistake, which you're not to blame, you know, and you don't get the grant. But then she reapplied again, and uh, they attribute to to her. Um, she she got a high position in in scoring, and that's a big deal because she was given a full grant to, uh, from the Portuguese government to do her PhD. Dissertation, which allowed her to to move to London and study at the Warburg Institute, and for I think like four years, right? Four years, yeah, four years during four years, and um, and have the the wonderful opportunity of being at the Warburg. The Warburg is an experience. I didn't have it directly as she had, but I know a lot of people who were colleagues, and which I I know, and the Warburg is an experience. I've been there myself a couple of times, and it's. It's this fabulous library. It has this fabulous library, where you have a whole corridor on the history of astrology with books and papers that you had no idea that existed. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. So probably every, it's probably the best or one of the best libraries for the history of astrology in the world, having just about every book you would want to find, uh, both in terms of like critical editions of. Texts in their original language, or translations, or books on the history of astrology, and other things like that. Yeah, and it has this huge collection of very obscure papers. You know, um, sometimes important that sometimes have sources or discussions on sources that you had no idea that existed. And because the Warburg is organized in a very peculiar way, so it's not like a regular library where things are cataloged as they come. Um, in the Warburg Library, things are cataloged by theme. So when you and, and you have access, to, direct access to the books. So once you get to the shelf where your book that you're looking for is, it's most likely that in the surrounding volumes will be about the same subject. Mm, right. So that's amazing. So it, it will immediately once you. Are looking for a book and you find it, you immediately find like ten other books that are on the same subject that you didn't know existed. Exactly, exactly. And there is a lot of, of, of topics that are good in the in the Warburg Library, but the topic, the main ones are uh, history of astrology, history of magic, and history of art in general. Um, as when I was doing my my uh, BA in art history, I went there a few times and. 
the, the corridors of art history are, are also fabulous. You know, the whole library is amazing. Um, but you do have a strong, uh, very strong collection. And as you said, probably the largest collection on the history of astrology and also on the history of magic, which I cannot evaluate because I don't know uh, the existed what collections are on that topic. But uh, it, it certainly it's huge. Huge. Yeah, but for example, like David Pingree did his critical edition of the Picatrix in the 1980s, and I think that was published through the Warburg Institute um, in like 1980 something, just to give an idea in terms of the history of magic. And then there also have been other major um, books that have been published on the history of astrology, like I think J.D. North's Horoscopes and History, uh, which is on the history of house division, was published by the Warburg Institute in 1988 or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That we, which we mentioned last time we, we did the podcast. Yeah, that that's a uh, the seminal work on the history of house divisions, and that's also Warburg Institute edition. So there are a number of things. It's it's a, it's amazing, an amazing place. So and she had the opportunity, and she was very very lucky, and she was um, very fortunate to 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 be there. And she loved, she loved London. She loved the Warburg Institute. She loved the people. You know. She 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 really liked that that period of her life, um, and um, now she was in love. Like most people that went to war, she was in love with the place. Yeah, because she was a, a astrologer and she was a researcher, and then she was able to combine those two things into because from her previous career as a journalist and and somebody good at investigating things, and combined those two things. And was able to do that as a primary focus, and and sometimes people don't understand that until you get caught by that feeling or that that bug that um, draws you into studying the history of astrology. It can be a really fun thing to study just in it of itself for its own sake, and especially if you have a subject that you're interested in researching more and uh, a place like a library or something to that has lots of resources to do that. It can be a very all-encompassing um, sort of thing to focus on. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and astrology was definitely Elena's passion, as it is mine. Um, and she felt very privileged to to be able to 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 study there and to and to attain this this scholarship because it's not easy, um, especially at the age she was in. You know, because she, she didn't start young. Uh, most people are doing their PhD by their late twenties, early thirties, and she was doing that much later in life. Um, uh, so she she felt um, that she had to take advantage of this opportunity that has had uh, that life had brought to her, and she had fight for. So she did the best work possible. So she was in her late forties or or early fifties by this early fifties, yeah, yeah, late forties, early fifties. And she also would have been one of the first astrologers to have the honor, sort of privilege of studying the history of astrology and working on a PhD on the history of astrology at the Warburg Institute. I think there was maybe one other before her or, or contemporary, which would be Dorian Greenbaum. Dorian right? Greenbaum, yeah, I think Dorian Greenbaum. I don't know. Everyone that studied that, but uh, as far as I know, Dorian Greenbaum was the first astrologer, practicing practice astrologer, to go to the Warburg and to be able to to be there as a PhD researcher and to be accepted there. And as Elena said many times, Dorian opened the door, you know, 
for other people to do serious research because the Warburg Institute is very selective in terms of his students. You, you, you need really need along the process to accomplish, to prove that you are able to do a proper academic research. Um, you're not accepted as a PhD student until your second year uh, of, of study. You have to pass through a period of proof in which you have to prove that your research is worth uh, is worthy, you know, and that you are able to be um, to uphold the standards that the, the institute demands. Um, so, so it's quite an accomplishment, I, I have to say. It's quite an accomplishment. And Dorian opened that door. Uh, Elena was next. I don't know if other people. Probably there are more, but I, I'm not, not that I know of. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. So she had to um, sort of prove herself and uh, and perform at or above a certain level, so that despite her otherwise interest in astrology, privately or the fact that she had been a practicing and teaching astrologer that actually published astrology books that. That wasn't going to interfere with, or in any way, make her work less than uh, other astro other historians who were not astrologers. But in fact, it seemed like part of what she also wanted to prove was that there was some things that she could bring to the table that were actually assets as a result of her background in astrology. Exactly, exactly, and that was something that Charles Burnett recognized in her. You know, the ability to um, bring her knowledge of astrology as a, a practitioner, and she was a practitioner of that tradition by then, um, to the academic research. So you get a new insight into the reading of uh, of the documents uh, that you you are studying, and that is quite valuable. But you still need to perform at an academic level. For example, she had to pass a Latin text text no one. Uh, a medieval Latin text and a medieval French text before she was admitted into the PhD. Um, you know, because she has again, she has to prove knowing a traditional astrology is not enough. She has to prove that she has the academic skills to to perform and do a, an academic, a proper academic research. Um, and she did. Yeah. Yeah, and so and so part of that as a classic scholar uh, or historian of science is having high language. Uh, or high-level language skills. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, you need to know Latin at least if you're working with European sources, and it's always good to know a little bit of Greek, Hebrew, Arabic, depending on what kind of sources you're working on. Which is no small small thing. Uh, I mean, even for if languages come easily to somebody, which is you know partially a a skill and partially like a sort of gift. It's still like learning a new language or an ancient language is still something that requires some work. Yeah, yeah, and it's not easy. You know, it's not something that you learn in a year or two. Even if you dedicate full time, it's 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 difficult. You then you need to years to develop the skills. You know, to translate, to 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 understand the subtleties of language. You know, because it's not just reading it. You need to understand them, the nuances. Uh, of the language to really be able to translate and to understand the content, and that takes years of work. Yeah, so so it, you need a lot of effort. You know, I still struggle with Latin sometimes, uh, and I've been working with Latin texts for quite a, some years now. Uh, it's an ongoing uh, skill that you have to be, to develop. 
especially if you don't come from a language background. Yeah, I languages uh, picking up new languages is not something that comes easily to me. So I'm always in awe of people like uh, Helena who who have multiple languages and can read uh, multiple languages and able to do work uh, in them at that level is really impressive and is a huge asset for any astrologer or any historian. Um, so there was she had a bit of there was like a stroke of luck that happened somewhere around this point. That set up the rest of her story and and made her PhD thesis even more interesting. Um, and this happened at the Warburg, and I think it was Charles Burnett who initially set her down this path, right, where he said that she should talk to this other scholar since she was looking at this notebook that was anonymous and they didn't know where it came from that you two had found ten years earlier. He said um, he, he recognized something and you should talk to this other scholar about it. Yeah, the thing was that. The, her document, this document, is was good, but they were a bit um, afraid that it was not enough. That there would need to be added more documents to to give a, a you know a good view of the practice at that period, etc. So they were. This was the early first year, so they were still exploring how to approach the topic and how to approach the document. So um, and suddenly, and then Charles remembered, uh, why don't you speak with David Just? And David Just is a uh, a scholar who, uh, in the last uh, uh, decades, have been uh, compiling, you know, uh, the lists of existing manuscripts in the libraries, and he had just studied the astrological manuscripts and published a book on the a catalog on the astrological manuscripts of the, the of the National Library of France, of the the Latin manuscripts specifically, right? Yes, exactly. The Latin manuscripts. Um, so uh, I think this was in the Christmas party of the of of, of the Warburg Institute. You know, by the end of the semester, um, uh, and David just was there, and Elena went and sat with him, and she opened her computer with the, the PDF of the of the manuscript. He opened. The images that he had from the manuscript, and suddenly, it was the same script, the same hand, the same symbols, the same way of drawing the charts, and better yet, there were charts that were repeated in the two manuscripts. And so suddenly, I, I mean, she, she said, she said that she she just ran up to Charles and said, "We found it. It's the same man. It's the same author," uh, and she was very happy about that. And in her telling of it in the other interview, she said she was exclaiming and she was so excited that initially Charles Burnett thought something was wrong or that she got yeah. in a fight with David Joost or something <laughs> exactly. like that. But that wasn't, she had to clarify no, we found out another, there's another manuscript that exists by the same author. Um, so now we have two of his works, and this other one just came from some library in France, so completely removed in a completely different country. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, how it was signed, so it is signed by uh, an S. Bele, um, which is assumed by some historians that it's Simon Bele, uh, but we're not sure. Uh, there's no. Um, it's a possibility, but not a certainty. Um, and suddenly, you had more charts. You know, already a good collection of charts that she had added to another collection of charts and text. You know, 
uh, excerpts of works for several authors, a delineation of three uh, different charts, um, some copied from elsewhere, another one that Elena has more or less proven or assumed or, or proposed with, with good uh, evidences that is done by Bellet himself, because it's done in French and not uh, in Latin like the other ones. Um, and so uh, the two together are, they complement each other. So when when the almanac is missing or it has few uh, few note notations, it's the time where the other book is being written. So there is a, a, a strong connection between the two. So they are part of the same workbook. Uh, and that is amazing. And from there, she could she could build, you know, a whole uh, thesis out of it. And yes, she did. And so she had a name. She had now a name to give to this person, S. Bellet, who might, might be Simone Bellet, but you don't, you're not sure. And she had now two of his works instead of just one. Um, so here's the, this one is also available online through the uh, French library, and it's a very old looking uh, book. And you should go to. Do you know what pages? Signatures um, on? Uh, no, no, not by heart. Here we go. And so it's a, it's handwritten manuscript, and most of it's in Latin again. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that then becomes enough for her to write a PhD thesis, then and start working on a PhD thesis on this previously unknown uh, astrologer. And he uses enough dates, and he also writes dates sometimes, like what date he was writing a certain passage, um, so that you were able to date it. To, she was able to date it to the like the middle and second half of the 15th century, and that he was living in France. Yeah, exactly. the The, the core of the work, and she would love to be here explaining this to you, um, is to demonstrate. The practice of an astrology of that an astrologer of that period, because most of what we know about the astrological practice comes from primers, you know, source books, uh, not from practical examples of a, of the application of knowledge, you know. Yeah, so we we have a lot of from the past two thousand years, like instructional texts where somebody like Ptolemy sits down and writes four books to outline. This the theory of astrology, and these are all the techniques, and this is the theory of how this works. But sometimes they don't even have chart examples. Like Ptolemy, for example, doesn't have any chart examples. But this, for the first time, was actually the private two private notebooks from a practicing astrologer, and you could get an insight into his actual practice. Exactly, and we have those kinds of of examples from later. You know, from the 17th century, some some of the 16th century, we do have that. You know, um, you have Cassell's work on Simon Foreman, for example, in which they are studying their workbooks. But that's is much later. This is very early, and it's very rare that you find such a a, a manuscript from this period. It's like um, 500 years from now, uh, an historian being able to read your book. Uh, uh, on the Hellenistic on Hellenistic astrology, but having the luck of finding uh, notes from your consultations or from your personal studies, etc. And although the book is important, 
even more valuable is those te direct testimonies of what you were actually doing. Uh, you know, because most of the time, in, and people forget about this when they study uh, the history of astrology, is that what we see in the books, it's doctrine. It's theoretical knowledge. We really don't know if they applied all of that into practice, even when they give examples. Because sometimes when we see the what they do in their daily uh, astrological practice, it's quite different. Uh, so they don't use the whole spectrum of techniques. They specialize on this one. Uh, you know, it's a whole other universe that opens up, and it's and this is the strong um, core of of Elena's book and Elena's thesis is that she explores as much as she can. What is he doing? What is his knowledge? What is his approach to practice? You know. Um, and it's fabulous. It's fabulous. You have calculations of longevity, examples of calculation of the Almutin, which is something you'd see in books, but you rarely see exam practical examples of, of a living astrology applying that, you know. Um, and other stuff, predictive techniques, oraries, elections. So you have a, a rich, um, a rich idea uh, of what is he studying, what he's thinking it's important. What is he considering? So that's the strong point. For example, one of the things that is amazing in his book is um, the part, the the, the lots. Um, he uses a lot of them. And for example, in the mundane charts, and he has a huge section where he notes mundane charts and he makes uh, notations about that, he uses a lot of those weird lots you know the lots of wool and the lots of meat and the lots of sugar of sweet things and stuff like that which we think well they're not really going to use that apparently they did okay so he used like did he use the lot of lentils that's one of my favorite like obscure lots i'm not sure the latin but it, it does have the the lot of beans i think okay uh, i'm not cool. sure if it's the same but it's close you know close enough <laughs> i'll take it um yeah, and and they use that, for example, to understand the quality, the amount of that produce in 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 a certain year. The prices are they going up? Are they going down? Is it going to be accessible? Is it going to be more expensive because it's rare? Um, and that's very interesting because we do not have many examples of that application. Right. So uh, one of the the manuscripts contains a table of planetary positions that's dated. 1469 through 1480 so that's roughly his time period and that places him just to give people like a context that's uh 200 years after the time period roughly of Guido Bonatti but about 200 years before the time period of William Lilly so that's a really interesting middle ground period where sometimes when you say somebody says 15th century you think well that's Renaissance or early modern astrology, but it's it's not. It seems like that was something Helena was clear about that it's it's actually medieval or late medieval astrology still. Yeah, it's still late medieval. So this is more or less contemporary, a little later than Regiomontanos, for example. Okay. Okay. Uh, so it's around that time. Um, so it's mid fifteenth century to late fifteenth century. Um, and uh, it's a period that of which we do not know that much. You know, we know a lot about uh, late uh, early modern period. So late seventeenth century, we know a little bit more, especially the British authors. 
we know uh, uh, something about the medieval period with the Arabs and all, all that transmission to, to the Latin world. But there are huge gaps in our knowledge of the late medieval period and the, the early modern 16th century. 16th century is a black hole in terms of our knowledge of what is happening with astrology in that period. Um, that's the area which I'm, I'm studying. Um, and uh, because we usually do a jump from Middle Ages, then then to to, to Lily, because those are the more available sources, of course, for everyone. But to make that jump, it's quite a huge jump. So a lot of things have changed in in between, you know. Yeah, we usually jump from like Bonatti, who's like circa thirteen hundred, to Lily, who's like sixteen forty seven, and that's that's a long gap. Yeah, yeah, a lot of things changed in astrology. Back then, you know, perspectives, philosophies, points of view, applications, which are not mapped. So this author um, shows up during that that time period. He was previously not known and hadn't been studied. And those two notebooks that survive, one in a in a library in Portugal and one in France, had not been recognized as being by the same author until Helena had this discovery with David Joost at the Warburg Institute, and then she she sets out to study it and make that. The focus of her PhD thesis, um, which she eventually completed in, in what year? She completed in 2018. And the date of grant of her PhD is right the last day of 2018. So that's where the official date of the, of the PhD says she did her, her evaluation in October or November of 2018. That's when she was, uh, she passed her viva. Um, and, uh, yeah, and what, and this French manuscript was known. It had been described. It had been addressed by some known historians, um, like Jean-Patrice Poudet, which is a, a huge historian of astrology in France. And he had delved into it. But when suddenly this other manuscript comes by, then it makes that even huge. It's huger. It's much larger than expected. Because what was an interesting collection of charts becomes a fabulous collection of charts, um, and that is amazing. Right. Once, once she recognized that this Portuguese, uh, this book from the Portuguese library was by the same author. Um, so it has uh, how many charts are in it? One of the collections, one of the books, contains something like forty or fifty charts. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the total. I don't recall. Um, what's the total charts, but it's huge. Okay. And um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is one of them actually contains birth charts for all of his children, or at least like five different children who are all born almost in succession one year after another. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I remember that was, was one of the first charts that we managed to read. And he said, um, Marta Filia Mea, so uh, Martha, my daughter, um, and we thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, you have the French kings, and then wait a minute, <laughs> it's uh, his daughter, um, and he has also two boys or three. I don't recall. I th yeah, two boys that die at a very early age, and there is this Martha, and there I think is. Um, a third boy that apparently survived because he doesn't make note of uh, of his death, um, and that is quite 
interesting. And he also has um, cousins and, and 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 uncles and 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 uh, and that kind of family, you know, nearby near family uh, uh, along with uh, his charts, and that is quite interesting. Yeah. And some of the earlier authors, like um, you know, Hephaestus of Thebes or Manetho or. David Pingree thought even Vedius Valens, there was this one chart that Valens kept using over and over again that Pingree uh, suggested might be Valens' own chart. Did Helena ever think that there was one chart in there that could be Aspelli's chart, the author's chart, or has he never mentioned one that that's close? No, there's none that leads us to suspect that. Nothing. That's too bad. There was I noticed in her list in the book, um, that there was one that's listed as like because there's n- names or or the owner of the birth charts are, are known and and stated in a bunch of them, but there's one where it's like encoded. I think is what she said. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There are several which are encoded. There's one in the in the in the Lisbon manuscript, and I think several in the in the in the other manuscript. In he in he, in he replaces the vowels by by numbers. So A equals to one. Uh, um, uh, so yeah, and go on and you go on until U. So the vowels are are letters. So to mask the name, uh, and what she suspects, and that's her argument, is that these were sensitive people. You know, very important people who were in a sensitive position, and to be doing her their chart could mean. That you would be, uh, you would have specific political allegiance. So, if someone would get your your notebooks, if those names were there, you might be in trouble because they might suspect you were allied with this one and this one. Uh, and this is a period in France where there's a lot of internal wars for power. Uh, so, uh, it's just, this is the, this, the time of um, King Louis XI, uh, which. You know, it's they. There are a lot of forces against the king. You know, and alliances against the king, um, and that's very interesting. So he probably was very weary of certain uh, charts, uh, so that they were not visible, directly visible in in uh, in the book, in the notebook, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that's really fascinating. That even though it's his private notebooks and and collections of of notes and things and charts that. There's some where he still had to be careful uh, to to mask or to hide the identity of the owner of that chart. Yeah, exactly. And another interesting thing about the, the, the is also the tables, because in the tables he has several notations, side notations, and most some of them are important events of the time. You know, wars, um, usually wars or comets or heavy rains, earthquakes. You know. Uh, notable events, and that he notes on the um, on the side of the tables, and sometimes gives the planetary positions. You know, the ascendant at the time he calculates the ascendant or the moon position, something like that. Um, and that is also very interesting. Okay, so he's accompanying the politics of his time, you know, and noting it in her in his if marries. Right, he's noting the what were the correlations between celestial movements and earthly events. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, and one of the books, I think it was the one from France, has actual excerpts from some texts where he was copying down 
um, from different texts from earlier astrologers, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So he probably didn't have the books, he didn't have those manuscripts, so he's copying the parts that he's interested in, you know? This is pre-printing, or printing is just coming up at this point in time. So it's very recent technology, probably not one he has access to at this period of time. So he has to copy manuscripts. So if you have a book that has an interesting sec segment, you're going to copy it because you want to read it later on. Um, and it's a lot of work. He copies the table, you know, several years of a table so he can work. Uh, Imagine having to calculate, having to copy by hand ephemeris. The know? ephemeris, right. Okay. <laughs> so he's copying planetary tables so that he knows where the positions were for some specific period that he wants to study. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Probably because he doesn't have access to a library, at, uh, easily access to a library where we could, where we could go and, and consult it. Um, he has to have his own copy. Right. Who were some of the sources that he drew on in terms of um, earlier medieval astrologers? I think he, uh, if in Mashallah he does. Uh, he does John of Ascendon, uh, who does a very important work on mundane astrology, um, and is one of the major sources of mundane astrology for the early modern period. Um, he's an English author. Um, who else? Uh, he, I know he was, one of them was like a commentary. Uh, there was a section on the significations of the houses where Helena says that he writes a date after he finished writing that, which was February 1st, 1473. And I think it, she said it was from a commentary on Al Kabizi. Probably, probably. You know, I don't, I don't recall exactly who all the authors were, um, but yeah, he has a lot of Arabic authors, you know, the traditional ones, the ones that, we still today we, we we quote in tradition. Um, he has also some others of his time, so he has connections with astrologers of his own time, um, French and German astrologers, and uh, so he's part of a larger network. And this is also something important, you know. There is a network of communication between astrologers very early on. Um, but that is a, we don't not, it's, it's some, the type of documents or, or that never survive or very rarely survive, you know, and, and, and he notes and he, he, he quotes them in like sources of his, of his times. You know, there are certain charts where there are several times or charts of, of kings or princes. And he, he notes this is from. It's a certain astrologer, you know, he, he gets the source. Who gave him that time? So they were exchanging like birth data of some of the like kings and, and events and other things. Exactly. Nice. Okay. So there was like an underground like network of astrologers kind of um, exchanging information with each other um, for in ways that are kind of similar. I guess that still happens today, actually. Astrologers exchange charts or you know, if you were there or witnessed or saw on the news this chart, you wrote down the time, and somebody might get that from you at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you see, for example, in the Hellenistic sources, when they have these charts, where they don't say who it is, 
but it's obvious who it is. You know, it's the emperor, and you know exactly who it is. But they never name it, so that they don't get it wrong. This one was born, you know, at a certain point, and and you know perfectly well who it is by the dates, by the description. But they're not naming it. But still, it circulates. You know, the charts of the emperors, the charts of the main generals. You know, and there are, I remember a couple of years ago, there were still a lot of charts, for example, from Vettius Valens to identify, because certainly those are important political figures, you know, important figures in society of that period. But who are they? You know, <laughs> some is obvious, some are not. I think James Holden identified one of them as Nero that hadn't been identified previously, or in Hephaestio, some of the modern historians identified one of the charts as the Emperor Hadrian. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And here you see the same thing. Uh, I remember that was someone that is it's the la- it's a lady, which is a certain famous lady, which probably by that period everyone would know who she was, but we don't know anymore. You know, and it's difficult to know unless you know very particular, uh, very specific uh, events of that society of that time. Perhaps you can identify it, but. Elena couldn't, and she was always very frustrated because she couldn't identify all, all the charts that she had. How many of the charts that were identified are ones where the author, not, you don't have to give an exact number, but it seems like there were many where there are a number of kings and stuff that there's charts, and, and are those named in the manuscript, or how many did Helena herself, was she able to infer or figure out just based on the date that was given? I suppose that a lot of them. Um, she more probably identified around five to six that she was able to know exactly who that person was, or at least has a, had a strong suspicion of who it was. Others, she makes some suggestions, but she wasn't sure. She wasn't sure who they were. She had suspicions because of the position of the chart, the way he dealt with it. Um, I remember there was one which we, they were unsure if it was a man or a woman because of the way the title was given. And what gives out is the way the part of marriage is calculated. Because the part of marriage changes from a man or to a woman in the inverts. Um, so she was able to infer, yeah, confirm it's really a, a woman because the part of marriage is calculated as if it were for a female chart. So. So that is interesting. That's where astrology can can come. Another thing, for example, that she very early on noticed is that figures which are identified and whose date of birth is not historically known. Hmm. And if you go to a history book about that figure, it said, oh, she was born about this year, sometime in this year or the first. And then there's an astrological chart. It has the exact date and the time. So certainly, then you have biographical data, which can come from these documents that can give you a more historical, more historical details about this person. Where, what year exactly was this person born? And from that, from there, you can infer other historical consequences of that. You know, um, who, which child was born first? What was happening in the life of that important figure when the first born or the second born came to be? You know. It's sometimes it's important data for people studying the period. Yeah, so it's actually providing really valuable historical information for historians um, that's coming from being able to study and, and analyze the astrological content of these texts. Yeah, exactly. For example, there is a couple 
which had I don't think I don't think I think they didn't have children. I don't recall exactly the the details because at the start the time Elena was writing this, I was already involved in my own PhD, so I accompanied it, but I don't I don't, I don't know the details. And uh, um, sadly, um, I haven't been able to read the book uh, since um, since I got it. You know, I I did all the the indexing and all of that because it was required. Charles Burnett, of which I have I have to thank a lot because he was extremely kind and helpful with the revising uh, the, the later the. The revising of the book for for printing, he he did a lot of the work, um, and uh, so. But I haven't read it again since Elena passed away, and um, so I don't recall the details. But um, I was remembering this couple, and I, I they either had difficulty in conceiving, or they didn't conceive at all. They didn't have children, and it's interesting because he goes. In the chart, and he, he he studies the part of children. The part of children is there in both, uh, and they, they're just in one page. You know, the, one is in the front, and the other was in the verso, the recto and the verso of the same folio, and husband and wife. And he's studying the part of children, and it's known historically that they had problems having an heir, and there it is. You know, he is studying that at the time they are alive, and it's possible that he is one of their advisors. Okay, because he has a lot of detail on those people because he was accompanying the life of those people as he was going. So probably he was he was one of their physicians. You know something we don't know the details, but um, that's very interesting uh, to know this uh, and to have all these details about a colleague from far, far in the past. You know. <laughs> Right, and and there's one actually you mentioned the physician, and that there's one tantalizing clue that Helena mentions, which is that there is um, one uh, physician in France in the 15th century whose name was Simone Bell Belle, and so there's the suspicion of whether, even though there's no direct evidence, there's at least a question of whether that could be the author of these two astrological texts. Exactly. Um, Probably it is, because there are not many names with S in, the, in that time period. Simon is of very high probability. So all historians agree that most likely this is Simon Belli, a Simon Belli, um, a physician, and he appears to, to, to have medical knowledge. So, so that points of him being a physician, surely. But again, you know, you cannot say for sure that it is Simon Bell. You can only make uh, um, that that possibility. You you raise that possibility. There's a strong possibility that this guy is called Simon Bell, but we really don't know for sure. Right. So, and this is in a period where, in the 15th century. Um, Many doctors had some astrological training for diagnostic purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, astrology and medicine are very are always connected, you know. And um, there are a, a large group of physicians which are astrologers as well. And in France, you have a long history during the 15th century of astrologer physicians, um, and uh, and this is one of them, most certainly, most certainly. Okay. Yeah, and one of one of the other interesting charts is an orary. 
that comes at the very end of the French manuscript, upside down. So, so he, he had the book upside down when he, he wrote it. And it's, what does it say? It's uh, an orrery on um, the general fortune, you know. It's, a, it's an universal question. Hmm. You know, what is going to be the fortune, destiny, you know, of that person? And uh, by the date, Elena thinks that he's, he, it's one of his patrons who is involved in a political coup in which one of them, one of the leaders, is killed by the king of France. And so they're very afraid for their lives at this point. So possibly this is a time where he does this question, what is going to happen to me? Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, so astrology, sometimes astrologers were dealing sometimes with the very serious matters of, of life and death. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, in addition to medical things, and I think not too long after this time period, there was another doctor, uh, was Jerome Cardin also trained in medicine? Yes. Okay. Cardin and was a medic, was a, med a physician. More than he was, a, he was a mathematical uh, doctor, so a doctor of medicine and an astrologer, right? Or, or even actually, Nostradamus was also uh, trained in medicine, a doctor as well as an astrologer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the uh, the astrologers, the most well-known astrologers, are court physicians. So usually, not all of them, but usually, when you say, "Oh, he was the court astrologer." That means he was the court physician and he knew astrology. And that's why sometimes they have good information on the birth of, of, um, of princes uh, because they are there for the delivery. So they, they know when, when it happened, what time, at what time it happened, you know, right. they're on top of it. Uh, that's a really good um, reference point, maybe for people not familiar with the time period, but just that Nostradamus would have been born a few decades after and would have lived a few decades after Espelle? Yeah, yeah. It's the next century. Yeah. Right. So by the time Nostradamus is born, uh, Bele would be in his old age if he's still alive. You know, we don't know exactly his age. There's an we estimate, but we don't we don't know. We don't have his birth data, unfortunately. It's rare to have an astro the astrologer's mm. own birth data in this period, although there are these instances, you know, where they repeat a certain chart that leads historians to suspect mm, this probably is their own chart. Yeah, uh, the one with the Valens is funny because he he knows a little bit too much about this one person's life, uh, including that the guy was involved in a shipwreck when he was 35 or 36, and that he happened to have the birth charts of like eight other people that were on the same ship. Which is a little little suspicious. It's suspicious, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. one of the things I think that Helena mentions in the book was that there was a little bit of like a generational shift in astrology around this time period as well. And there's a little bit of um, tension of he seems to uh, be part of a, a tendency sometimes to value older sources like uh, Ptolemy that he thought were. You know, more tied in with or older or, or more authoritative in some way, even though he also draws on the medieval Arabic tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Here, and this is something that she noticed early on and it's very important is we are seeing that, uh, that what we call today the return to Ptolemy, 
that that shift into the more Ptolemaic uh, approach that we then will will characterize the 16th and the 17th century, the the back back to Ptolemy movement. Yeah, yeah, um, and then um, that's a very interesting line of work because we we see a lot of evolutions on that. Um, and within that movement, later on in the 17th century, we see a return to tradition, where they're rejecting a lot of what Paul Tommy said and going back to the Arabs. You know, and that, there's a lot of that. That's a very interesting line in itself to study. But here, what we observe is that he gives Ptolemaic terms in the table. So he has it in a, uh, one of those standard tables of dignities where he has Ptolemaic terms, but then. At the end of the table, he has the sum of the Almutans. So, adding all the all the all the dignities, what Almutan, you know, which planet has the most dignities in which degree, and those calculations are not made according to the to the to the Ptolemaic terms that he's putting in the table, but with Egyptian terms. So. He's mixing systems there, and you see them also in the practice, sometimes using Ptolemaic terms and sometimes using Egyptian terms. So he's, you know, in between two systems. Again, in the part of fortune, in certain charts, you can see the part of fortune and then the part of fortune according to Ptolemy. So he doesn't know, or sometimes other parts, one according, one normal and the other one according to Ptolemy. So they already, at this period, he doesn't know should he invert the formula or not. Because if Ptolemy is not doing it for the part of fortune, should they invert it for the other parts as well? So you see, you know, this coming in and this debate coming in. Um, should you use the ingress chart or should you use the previous lunation? And there's a whole debate which one is more correct. And the Ptolemaically inclined astrologers tend to use the lunation, the previous lunation. Other astrologers would use the chart of the ingress itself. So, so there is this debate going on. We don't see him debating because he doesn't write text of his own. But we can see that it's in its practice. You know, the, the doubt or the the experimentation exists in the charts themselves, which is fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous, right? Because it's a we, you you can see the tension in the practice and what he's actually doing uh, between those two different streams of the tradition, and it was something that becomes much more openly sort of debated in subsequent centuries, like in the 17th century with Lilly and some of his decisions of um, when to incorporate Ptolemy versus when to go uh, with other astrologers, and a tendency to favor Ptolemy in, in issues of disputes. But it's interesting seeing that tension because for this author, for Esbele, um, he would have been inheriting on the one hand, knowing that Ptolemy was the oldest text that survived to him at that time, uh, but then, but that it, its approach to astrology is a bit different compared to the uh, tradition of astrology that was inherited from the Arabic stream and the early Latin stream, which. Um, in terms of some of its procedures was much different because it was more influenced by Dorotheus and the Dorothean stream of the tradition. It, it kind of makes me think of um when I think about this issue in the astrological community, it makes me think of the difference between there's some historian uh, who said, or maybe it was like Nick Campion or somebody that said that um, you know, all philosophy, Western philosophy is basically just Plato or Aristotle for for many centuries and and different 
people playing off of either the Platonic stream or the Aristotelian stream for like a thousand years or two thousand years. Um, it's kind of similar here in the astrological tradition, where for a very long time you have the Ptolemaic stream and the sort of Dorothean stream um, playing off in some ways and being passed down in the tradition, and then this fundamental tension between the two of them. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and you see that uh, going on because Ptolemy is a very incomplete and unclear source. If we look at it, you know, it's a very interesting book. I think anyone interested in astrology should at least you know have a copy of Ptolemy and just read it a little bit to know to know our own origins as I was Dora tells. Um, these are the two main sources that build the whole tree of tradition. Um, but Ptolemy, the Tetrabill is a very incomplete book. And Ptolemy is confusing in the way he explains things, you know. He goes about them in a very strange way. Um, and houses are is one of the main problems with Ptolemy. He doesn't give a, a you know a listing, a, the normal listing of the houses and the meanings of the houses and the use of the houses, as we see in the Dorothean tradition. So um you cannot rely on Ptolemy to practice astrology. You would have a very, very incomplete way of looking at things. So you need to you meet meet there, you know, to 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 con to make it more consistent. And that's what we see throughout. And the astrologers recognize this. You know, the 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 good ones, the the ones that are really well educated in the sources, they know the limitations of Ptolemy. Um, what they do is because Ptolemy describes things in such a um, coherent philosophical Aristotelian system, you know, uh, of natural philosophy, he tries to structure astrology within the concepts of natural philosophy. He's a go-to source for explanations, but not a go-to source if you really want to practice astrology. Because he's not going to give you the, the, the things you need. It doesn't have the basic tools for chart interpretation, for elections, for orrery, for mundane. It's incomplete. You need other ones. And then this is, and this uh, problem, you know, you can see it throughout, throughout the history, you know, from early on, from to the Arabs, to the Latin world, and then to this period and later on, also in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, and it's a very interesting, uh, Development. It's 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 a, the debate or <laughs> the dilemma that that is transversal historically uh, from all any tradition that you're studying. Right. So, and this is one of the earliest and best instances of seeing that tension in an astrologer's own internal like dialogue or monologue with himself, with as you said, putting both positions in the same chart and sort of. Um, Maybe then, in some sense, experimenting or trying out different ones to see what worked best in practice. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that that is the valuable uh, the value of these charts because we're seeing they are experiment. It's not just a theoretical debate that it's done in books and text. It's something that they are experimenting in practice and trying to figure out which one works better. And this is the prelude of that. Return to Ptolemy and the rejection of the Arabs, which is more typical of very late uh, 15th century, by the end of the, so the last decade of the 15th century and early decades of the 16th century. That's where all of that is really uh, coming onto public debate, you know, in, in printed books. 
with uh, with of course the famous uh, disputaciones of uh, Pico de la Mirandola being you know a catalyzer for that debate, but it's already going on decades before the, his work. Right. So um, so Helena took it on herself to become like the world expert on this book and on um, researching everything possible and becoming an, an authority not just on this text but also all of the sources surrounding it and, and the time period surrounding it and everything else. And that's what she spent um, the greater part of, of that last decade of her life focusing on. And eventually she successfully defended her PhD thesis uh, at the end of, you said, 2018? 2018, yeah. Okay. What was that like? Or can you describe for those that don't know what it's like to defend a PhD thesis, What's that? what that's like or what that might have been like for her? Yeah, well, um, the process is um, you have to write it down. Um, and it varies a little bit from country to country. But in her case, she, she submitted the final um, document uh, after being approved by, of course, Charles Burnett, which is the supervisor. Um, after all, all things were corrected and everything was okay, uh, she was supposed to meet and then she has to go through um, a viva, so an evaluation in which you have, um, in which are present um, the, um, the supervisor, which cannot intervene, um, uh, two um, outside evaluators, and then a neutral uh, party that it's only there to assure that everything is going to occur with with the correct proceedings. Um, and so what happens is um, these people, these two evaluators have read your thesis, uh, have read your arguments and are going to ask you questions, you know, or making comments on your argument. Is your argumentation correct? Have you forgotten something in, in uh, crucial? Uh, is the argumentation well done? So they're going to ask questions to see if you really um, no, you can defend your your position and your your own arguments, and that's the process. Uh, once that is done satisfactorily, um, several things can happen. You can pass without any corrections being done to the to the document. That's a, that would be the top, you know. Um, or you can pass with suggestions for correction before the final submission. Or they might fail you. It's very rare that you reach this uh, <laughs> this point, and and they fail you because if you, for for someone to fail a PhD um, or have to completely rewrite it, it happens. That means it's not a good job, and and it means that the supervisor didn't do his work because a supervisor has to uh, be the one who says, "Okay, now it's good enough to be evaluated. If it's not, you just get it back." Write it again. Nobody goes into the defending it for the most part, not being prepared or ready to defend it. It's only once you're fully ready and you've written everything exhaustively that you go into this process. Yeah, exactly. If it's properly done, because it can happen that people fail. It's rare nowadays, but it does happen, unfortunately. And that's not only the student to blame, but also the supervisor that didn't do its worst job. Um, uh, and and most other times they they suggest corrections 
you know. It can be minor things. Uh, in, in Elena's case, it was minor things, you know. Uh, and then submission. So it looks like um, because it was uh, defended in the UK, they most of their, I think all of the PhD theses are available publicly online, and somebody had sent me the link. Is it okay if I show that? Is that true? Yeah, yeah it's public. Okay, just making sure. Um, so here is the there's the actual thesis, which is titled "The Making of an Astrologer in Fifteenth Century France: The Notebooks of S. Belle, uh, Lisbon, MS, seventeen eleven, and Paris, NAL three ninety eight, and University of London, Warburg Institute, twenty eighteen. Um, dissertation submitted in fulfillment of the requirement of the degree of Doctor of Philosophy on Combined Historical Studies. Uh, supervisors Charles Burnett and Sarah Migaletti. And there's her signature on April 12th, 2018. So, and then it's just this super comprehensive mm -hmm. treatment. No, sorry, treatment. not April, not April 12th. It's the, the 4th oh. of December. Yeah, sorry about that. It's, it's uh, European backwards. style. Yeah, 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 yeah sorry. <laughs> uh, so, 12th, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. So, 4th of December, 2018. Uh, and then super comprehensive table of contents for just every aspect of this, these two documents and everything that is known or could possibly be known and all of the cross-referencing of all other historical sources that are relevant in understanding this document so that she became the world leading expert on uh, these two documents and the surviving works of this astrologer from the 15th century. Yeah, yeah, and it is a, a it's a very very good work she did. You know, uh, uh, there aren't a lot of um, work, academic works on the practices and the techniques of astrology, and hers, I think, to date is one of the largest because she's really looking at it from the point of view of practice of the the astrological doctrine he's using. You know, it's very technical. Uh, I uh, we sometimes compared it, and I still do, to the history of mathematics. If you want to study how, let's say, logarithms were discovered and applied in a, in a document, you really have to outline the mathematical doctrine of logarithms, how are they used, examples of their usage, etc. The same thing with astrology, and that's a very technical book, and it's a very expert book. You know, not all historians are going to read a book on the, the history of logarithms. And as the, as the same, not, not all historians will be interested in the history of the astrological techniques, but still, it's a very important uh, work to be done. Uh, and she, I think she does it very well uh, here. Uh, it's a good example to follow, let's say. Yeah, it's a major contribution to our understanding of the history of astrology and just history in general. Um, so once she defended her thesis in late 2018 and she was awarded the degree doctorate, um, she then edited the uh, dissertation and turned it into a book uh, which just came out this year. It came out, I think, in, in July of 2021, right? Yeah, she, she submitted the book in around this time. Um, then in 20, 2020, uh, then 
it was reevaluated. I know you had you had the peer reviewing process that goes always with this uh, academic publications. Then she made the adjustments and the requirements that the peer review were were asking. Uh, and then she did the final version and she had submitted it. Um, she saw the cover, I think, one week before she passed away. Wow. Yeah. And the proofs arrived one week after. So you, you received the proof copy um, just a week after she uh, passed away unexpectedly. And, um, and yeah, and that, and that was, that was her work was finally out there uh, and sort of completed in that way. What, what were the changes that she made in between like the dissertation versus the book? I think she transcribed more of the manuscript and she consolidates a little bit more some of the argumentation, you know, and she cleans up a little bit more of the of the structure of the book, uh, from the thesis to the book, you know, because there is a difference between a thesis and a book. So there is an adjustment that needs to be done. Uh, and that's what she's done. The, 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 you can find the main argumentation on the thesis online. It's there. Uh, it's just better uh, aligned and, and polished in the book format. You know, it's a more mature version uh, of the PhD. Um, and took her uh, one year and a half to to do this. Um, this the structuring, you know, correcting errors that passed, you know, unnoticed stuff like that. It's it's um, adjusting and uh, restructuring. Uh, I can't tell you the whole difference because uh, uh, at that point I was f completing my own PhD, so I wasn't on top of what she was doing at the time. Um, but what you have in the book is a polished version of the historical argumentation that the thesis. Okay. Um, so here it is. So it's published by Brill, which is basically the main academic publisher of works on the history of astrology. And um, it says it it says the publication date was um, Either June or July of 2021. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The it shifted a lot around a little bit, uh, but it was um, in July, in June. Okay, because you have the the the, online, the the PFD the PDF comes a little later, I think, than the printed version. Okay, so the print version is the one that's yeah. dated 10th of June 2021, and that's the earlier yeah. one. Um, that's the early one. So you received the the manuscript for the book a, a week after she passed away, and she did get to see at least the cover, yeah. um, which is pretty amazing. Um, then you had to put together the index because it wasn't quite finished yet, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Charles Burnett made uh, most of the English revision, you know, and she he wrote and the adjustments because he's the native speaker i'm not an english native speaker so some of the obvious things will, will, i will miss so he did that and was a good a list a little lot of work that he had on that and i um i um, corrected um anything to do with tables you know uh, and mistakes in the, in the graphics 
and also compose the index once we had the final version. And I did the index. Um, and Elena had already left a lot of instructions, you know, how to do the index because she, she had been thinking about it. So she had compiled a list of terms that she thought the index should have. And what I did, I picked those terms and I, there are several indexes, but it's the index of astrological terms and concepts, which is on page 416. That um, I did. It was a lot. It took me a week to do. Um, and I tried to do it. If you are a historian of astrology or someone interested in the history of astrology and you want to find a certain term, a certain um, um, concept, the index is built to make your life easier. Right. You know? And I try to do, if, <laughs> I try to think in this, if I was looking for astrological terminology uh, and, and concepts in the book, how would I like it to be uh, laid out, you know? So I did my best. It was very difficult for me at the time to do this because I had to do this um, weeks after she, she, she had died and... Um, I could work, you know, half an hour on the book and then I would have to stop. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, to what extent? Because it was something that happened suddenly and unexpectedly was not something that was um, anticipated. Um, to what extent was that something that helped you to get through it? Or to what extent um, was that useful in terms of the grieving process, being able to bring her work to, to completion for her? Well, it helps, you know. Um, it honors her memory. You know? she, this is her legacy. And I want it to be as perfect as I could make it and contribute to that. So I didn't want to wait. So I wanted to work on this immediately so that the book was published on time. No delays at all. Because this was very important to her. Um, so I make sure that this was done quickly. And in time, yeah, and it's you were able to mention it in the introduction to update some of that um, quickly, which which is good. And so this was publishing the book was one of the last major things that she did. But I noticed that after she completed her PhD thesis, the two of you also launched um, the Astra project. Right? There was other yeah. long term plans that both of you set in motion pretty quickly. Um, over the past past couple of years, and, and and I should actually mention before I get into that, you this very in the past few months also def successfully defended your own PhD thesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I submitted it on the week before she died, and I defended it on the twenty eighth of June. Okay, so that was just a few weeks after her book came out, and. Yeah. Well, I, I I received the 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 copies, the first copies of her book in the exact day that I defended my thesis. I had just defended my thesis in the morning, and the, the books came afterwards. You know, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes things happen like that. I don't know if that felt a little reassuring or 
how did you how did you feel about that? Well, it's meaningful for me, you know. Things, two major things, are accomplished in a single day. You know, finally, it's I have the physical, you know, book. It's the final step in the in the in the process, and uh, it's the same time that I'm completing a huge step for me in terms of my own work. And the oh, also the accomplishment of the my the last four years of my life around my my own work and uh, all of that coming together. What was the title of your thesis? Let's see if I can remember it. <laughs> it's transgressing boundaries. Um, it's Jesuit astrology, uh, uh, Jesuit astrology in the in Portugal. Um, you know, so what I'm studying there is um, the use and teaching of astrology by the Jesuit order in the early modern period. Okay, and so it's it's more like sixteenth, um, seventeenth century. Yeah, sixteenth, seventeenth century. So a little later, <laughs> right? So so with that, both of you completed that sort of journey into. Academia that that you had both started uh, about a, a decade or more earlier. Yeah, exactly. So this is the peak, you know, the accomplishment of the PhD. It's your peak in your your progress of studies is when you complete, and now you become officially an expert or at least someone who has the proper credentials to 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 research the topic uh, properly, you know, academically. And that's a high point. This would be her high point. You know, it became her, her legacy. It's a pity. Uh, it's sad, but um, wow. Well, it's a major contribution, and it's on it's great that she was able to finish it and make that contribution um, because then it's not only that. Sort of academic side of her work that she was able to bring to completion, in addition to all of the astrological work and the practical work that she had done in teaching, you know, hundreds or, or thousands of astrologers and influencing, but also setting a, a standard and showing the way for many astrologers for many generations in the futures of of what you can actually accomplish through dedication and and skill and um, you know hard work. Yeah, exactly, and. Um and also, she would say, by respecting astrology, you know, um, recognizing astrology by what it is and what it has to offer, and not by your own standards, you know, not not fitting astrology in your own limited perspective, but expanding your perspective to encompass a much larger thing than you can ever perceive. Uh, so was, for her, it was about rising to the occasion in order to improve your, raise your own standards in order to meet up to what you need to be in order to do, do it right for the sake of of the astrology and for respecting it. Yeah, exactly. She had this huge respect for astrology, and she said that above all, astrology should be respected. You know, it's 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 to astrology that she owed her, you know, her life passion and. Uh, one of their main life passions, um, and she would always respect astrology and try to make it, uh, you know, clean, clear uh, knowledge. 
both from the practical point of view and the academic study of astrology, the historical study of astrology. Right. And, and one of the things that you two started working on in the last couple of years was um, this project for the academic study of astrology and for um, recognizing the contributions of different scholars, both um, in the present as well as in the past, that had made major contributions to that. And this was the um, Astra Project, which is academic conversations on the history of astrology. Yeah, well, that, that's the podcast. Uh, that's our, let's say, that's the public uh, face of the of the um, of the Astra Project. What the Astra Project was, it was an uh, an idea or the project that that appeared uh, by the time that um, Charles Burnett launched the. The Abumashar um, uh, Greater Introduction, and there was this huge conference. We did a pre-conference workshop um, in explaining the fundamentals of um, traditional astrology, in the sense that what would you need to understand in terms of techniques and the doctrine to understand and to be able to read properly the Great Introduction. So we were giving a sort of a workshop on basic astrology for academics. Uh, um, and that was quite quite an experience, and that was the official time where the Astro Project came into being, and it was very good because we had the chance to invite in person a lot of the of the academics that were there to join and to participate as advisors to the project, and Elena had this very good skill of connecting people and talking to people. And so her, one of her great contributions to the project was to establish a network, you know, and and we have a lot of advisors. We, we have um, a lot of people connected to the Astro Project at this point. And we had this huge conference planned um, two years ago, but then COVID came and um, and that was not possible to do. And I hope by uh, next year I am able to to accomplish that. And, and in August, then we, because the, the conference was not happening, we decided, and everyone was at home, <laughs> locked, <laughs> locked in. We decided to launch the the Ad Astra uh, um, podcast, in which we made these conversations. Well, it's not, they're not really interviews. It's conversations, casual conversations on the history of astrology with these academics or researchers that are doing their work in this field. And we gathered quite a good collection of, of videos um, uh, this past uh, year. And now I'm, after Elena passed away, yeah, there it is. Uh, after Elena passed away, it stopped. Uh, uh, I, I stopped, of course. I still published a few videos that I had on on archive to be published, which still feature her, and and now I re I regain again the uh, the momentum. So that's huge. So if you want to hear about um, for those listening to the to this podcast, if you want to hear um, uh, the researchers speaking uh, about their work and their research in their own words. Um, that's the place to go. Yeah, so it's at uh, youtube.com slash the Astra Project, and I'll put a link to it uh, either below this video on YouTube or on the Astrology Podcast website page for this episode for those that are listening to the audio version. 
um, but it's just this amazing collection where you're you're going through and you've been interviewing or having these dialogues with um, some of the leading historians on the history of astrology at this point. And also, one of the things that it has shown is just the sh- the scope of um, areas that these historians are working on in different. Ways in terms of ways that um, astrology can be studied within the context of of history. Yeah, exactly. Um, the project itself it's very focused on the history of astrological techniques. So we, we, we the research uh, project implies to study how the techniques developed throughout time. So it's very specific. But with the uh, with the podcast, we opened up a little bit more. So we're also talking with um, people who are doing research, historical research of astrology, on topics which are not technical. It can be philosophical, it can be social, uh, it can be several times, you know, several periods of time, uh, some outside the scope of the of the original Astro project, but still, which are interesting to know, you know, the whole universe of research that is out there. And I hope to continue uh, to do this. Uh, at least once a month, I, w- I would like to launch an episode where I talk with one of these researchers and present what they're doing, how they got there. Um, and I'll be also organizing, and this is the first time I'm going to announce this publicly, um, a workshop um, uh, on the history of astrology and um, you know the, the dilemmas of the, dis- of the discipline of the history of astrology academically with some of these scholars which is mm, now it would be uh, if i if everything goes well in the 6th of november and this will be an online event and i should have that uh, those details uh, soon um and of course people can attend um i'm not sure if directly via zoom like in a big conference or um, in a uh, YouTube uh, broadcast, but it will be available publicly. Nice, that, that's amazing. That sounds great. Mm. And this, I hope, it will be a prelude to a big on in-person conference to happen sometime in mid uh, mid two thousand twenty-two. So let's see, let's see if all goes well. <laughs> yeah, I know the last one had an amazing lineup, and that that was scheduled for for April or May of 2020 originally, right? But it, then COVID happened in March and April, and you and you had to cancel it. Um, but I think you've been able to show with the Astro Project and with those conversations, just you know how much interest there is, and how just the sheer amount of work that is being done on the history of astrology by different scholars around the world. So. There's a there's a need for that and a need for those conversations and um, you know there's probably people listening to this podcast now that didn't know that they could um, get a degree or get a PhD or a master's thesis focusing on the history of astrology but that might be interested in that um, and so this maybe will give some people some different ideas or some insight into that process. I mean, it, having completed that yourself over the past decade and and. Doing this work with Helena, what would you recommend to people if they did want to either go to school or if they're currently in school and wanted to focus on that area, or if they wanted to go back to school like the two of you did? I mean, do you have any advice, or is is that something that that is doable, that is possible? Yes, it is. I always say to people, it's never late to go back to to school and 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 do what what degree you want. Um, it depends on the scope of of your 
your objective. You do have, uh, you can do an MA if you don't have one. And I always do recommend if you, if you're, uh, if you really want like research and you really want to contribute with your research, try to do it in an academic degree, you know, because it will validate your work. It will give substance and consistency to, to your work. That doesn't mean that you already have, but it does give because even if you're a good researcher, with the academic process, you learn um, the uh, the troubles and, and and the lights of peer review, in which you have someone evaluating you and said, "This argument is not consistent. You need to work on this, or you need to prove this. You need to do." And this is very important, you know, because um, unfortunately, for those who like astrology, astrology nowadays doesn't have peer review at all. You know, almost anything is accepted, um, not or and tolerated, and people don't really um, put others into. I wouldn't say judgment, but evaluate their work. Not judging people, but the work. Um, and this is a facet that needs to be done. Otherwise, anything goes. Uh, and with the process of of academia, at least you are um, you have that that process of, of learning how to research and how to f to give found a good foundation to your to your argument and to your conclusions that's very important so um if you have a um a degree you can do an ma and depending on what approach you want to do to astrology you can go by uh, any historical subject history of culture for example is a huge uh, area where astrology has a good place to be explored um, you have the history of science, which is my area, in which I am exploring uh, from the point of view as a, a scientific knowledge um, of its own time, of course. Um, but you can go from to social studies. You can go, if you want to work on, for example, the history of astrology in either today's world or uh, the, from the 18th century or onwards, uh, the history of science will not be the, the area because it's no longer science by that period, but history of culture, history, social history, um, that can be uh, literature, uh, that can be a, a, an area where you can do an MA or a PhD. It really depends on the focus uh, uh, of your research. Um, uh, and then, well, uh, those who want to do the more uh, ancient uh, Areas they would need uh, language skills, paleography skills, and that's um, that's a whole learning curve that you need for for, for to do this work. Uh, but you can always find it, and why not? Yeah, and it's never too late. I know in one of my early biographical interviews with Demetra, she went back in the 1990s and to get a master's degree in classics and that required her learning ancient greek and learning latin which was not easy but it was something that she she was able to to do mm -hmm. yeah yeah you could you could use your own skills you know for example we have tons of arabic documents on astrology that need to be researched for example this enormous collection that Elena explored. Who knows if we don't have an Arabic document with even more charts? If you already know Arab, 
you know, if it's your language, why not attempt to explore this this uh, avenue? It's a must needed. There's a lot of uh, answers to be uh, to be found in uh, in Arabic um, in Arabic manuscripts, being the medieval or even early modern. You know, there's very little about early modern Arabic practice of astrology. Um, you know, you have so many examples. So explore your own country's uh, uh, history of astrology. You know, uh, why not? And do a good work uh, researching who were the astrologers, what they practiced, what they published. And you can do that even in the modern period, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century. That's a very good era to explore. Um, there are lots of things to be done. So. so part of the point is even though there's maybe more scholars doing work on the history of astrology than ever before, there's also still a, a huge amount of work that needs to be done. And so there's plenty, plenty of work and plenty of areas that different people could specialize in and set up Entire careers studying that could you know t- take up their focus for the rest of their life. Exactly, and do a good contribution. You know, you just need to make sure that well, you're in the right place uh, in terms of academia, and um, that you're doing a good work. And doing a good work has to do with your own inheritance skills, of course, but you can also learn how to do that. You know, you learn how to research. Uh, um, no one, no one was born, you know, knowing these things. You learn how to research. That's why MAs have orientation uh, classes to, to teach you how to do the proper research, how to handle sources, how to make quotations, how to read other people's work so that you can sustain to their arguments your own argument. You know, there's a whole process that uh, people can engage in and learn. Yeah, why not if if you like to study, sure, go ahead. We need good work, <laughs> right? Um, so, let's see. So you did the Astra project. Um, I know Helena had other academic papers that were in the works, um, or that she finished. One of them was just published a few days ago, or just came out a few days ago, right? Yeah, exactly. That's her last uh, paper. There are. One one more that it will be published at some point. That's done. That's been done for years. But you know, sometimes publications delay. Um, that is a very simple paper, but interesting paper um, uh, that uh, I did with her and another colleague uh, that should come up at any time, probably next year. Um, but uh, this last one was her last paper. Uh, she it was the result of her stay in um in the uh, Erlangen in the Erlangen University in Germany for a postdoctoral position in the IKGF which studies prognostication um in um in western and and, and eastern uh, medieval uh environments so they they study a lot of divinatory arts um divinatory practices. Uh, so her proposal for them was to study how the ideas of longevity and calculating of the length of life would change throughout time 
And there was a reflection between the philosophical approach and the practice. You know, there was some kind of correlation. And she was exploring that. Um, so it was a paper that um, it was still being explored. Uh, and she had submitted by the time uh, she died for peer review. But the results came several weeks after she had, she had passed away. Um, and uh, I have to thank um, Dorian Greenbaum. Uh, who helped me a lot in the revising of the of the paper because she she's more familiar with um, Greek and Hellenistic sources than I am, and she was able to to you know to make sure that all the citations were properly done and everything was as the best as she as it could be. There were certain improvements that could have been made to that paper, but um, Elena would have to have done that, you know. If we had added a few things, um, it wouldn't be her paper. It would be ours. So we decided to, very early on, you know, just to make the necessary corrections uh, and leave the paper as is. Um, yeah, that was probably a good approach to take. So it's um, published in the International Journal of Divination and Prognostication, um, which is another Brill pr publication. Um, but the title of the paper is Who Wants to Live Forever? Uh, Astrological Methods for Calculating Lifespan in Western Culture and Perspectives on Determinism in Astrology. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another um, really uh, weird but uh, sort of meaningful um thing in terms of that being her her final paper and she uh, i was reading it yesterday and today and and it's literally a comprehensive part of it is a comprehensive overview of the traditional technique for determining the length of life um that astrologers used for like 2000 years exactly exactly yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah so, so and she compared that with how that um changed and how views of it changed in different eras based on changing philosophical trends and how sometimes astrologers' philosophies influenced how they used techniques. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And because she saw it in, in Bella's work, and she has an example of Bella's there, um, there are several others uh, in which she's calculating longevity, and um, there are ones which are very touching in which she's calculating the longevity of his own children, and he's coming to the conclusion that there isn't a good uh, sign that the child will survive. And this is at a time when uh, infant mortality is very high. Um, and um, he's making all these attempts to assure that the child will live and that the chart has signs that the child will live. But you see clearly that he's, he's reaching the limits of interpretation that the rules allow. Uh, and then very sadly, you see the note, he's noting that the child died, you know, a few weeks afterwards or something like that. And that's, uh, that's a, a hands-on, you know, testimony of, of an astrologer that is practicing on its own children and, and living, you know, the, the, the desperation of possibly losing a child, nearly born, just born, you know, and and sometimes he even goes off in 
strange tangents of the technique. You know, he bends the technique a little bit of towards the awkwardness um, to to try to get a good, you know, benefic uh, that would somehow save the the, the day. But uh, yeah, and then he cannot, and you see that. He's not trusting his own <laughs> his own judgment on that, and that's quite fascinating. And from that kind of testimony, she had this idea of making this project on exploring. You know how that is um, how this handled because he has all all other examples where he's making natal delineations on people, and he says, "Well, we have this longevity, but then we don't know, we do not have aspects." Until much later on, you know, there's no direction that that is dangerous after the the time of the he leg, and then he says, but with also a good diet, a uh, good life, you know, a pious life, life can be extended. And this idea, you know, in which you have a Christian approach to longevity, in which piety can extend your life and can change somehow fate or what is determined by the chart, uh, she had this idea of making this research and seeing how. Home. having a, this overview of how this changes throughout time and with different cultures and different philosophical approaches. Yeah, so it's it's in its way it's a derivation of of her of her PhD. Right. What were Helena's own thoughts or views on on things like fate and determinism or the extent to which astrology indicates that things that she saw it or used it to find meaning in life? It's difficult to reproduce exactly her thoughts, but she had this idea that um, which in which I agree there's there's no absolute determinism nor absolute freedom. There's an equation of balance between the two things. So within certain parameters which you cannot change, you can move around those and make choices freely through them. Um, um, but there are things which apparently are determined. You know, you you are raised. You can give examples outside astrology. You are raised in a specific environment that's going to mold your your own perception and views of the world with certain parents in a certain gender, uh, in certain you know so social uh, norms, uh, religious norms. You know, and all of that is going to affect you, um, and that's somehow locks you into a system but within that you can move you can make choices you can change you can change mind you can go outside so it's sort of within our own field of limitations we can be free and that is more or less her approach you know there is an equation here of balance between how free you can be and how determined things are um, and that's what I think her this more or less approaches her personal view on the on the matter. Did her views change during the course of her professional her career as an astrologer, or were they largely consistent? I think they were largely consistent. Yeah. So, uh, I guess as we're getting towards the end of this, one of the questions I guess was what to what extent. Um, your focus was obviously still going to continue to be, and her focus was still going to continue to be on. The academic study of the history of astrology, um, but to what extent were you also still um, teaching astrology or, or going to teach in terms of the astrological community or in terms of the practice? I know that when I had you on last, 
uh, two years ago, it was to talk about your follow-up book for a, a course that the two of you were teaching on on astrology. And I know she had had some classes that she was teaching online on um, specific topics on the practice of astrology, right? Yeah, yeah. She well, to all, all throughout our academic um, careers, you know, and, and paths, we never stopped teaching astrology and and and, and practicing it. We we have been studying and uh, uh, teaching, sorry, and practicing all this time. We never stopped. We focused uh, a lot of here of Portugal. We have uh, we didn't go outside Portugal too much, but we have been consistently teaching astrology for all these years. Um, and in the, the last three years, we started to expand. So when more or less by the time we we spoke, we started to expand that also to the uh, to outside of Portugal, so to, to to teach in English, which is something that we hadn't done for quite a while. Um, so now I have several courses running, and there are still courses by Elena. Uh, and thankfully, we because of this online. Uh, work with recordings. I that we have a lot. I have a lot of recordings of Elena's lessons, um, which are here as also as are her legacy, and people can can later on. I'm going to reorganize that and offer those as courses. If you still want to have an idea, have the, the experience of uh, her teaching, you still can. She taught. Um, an advanced course, uh, an introduction to to the approach of the chart in a more advanced manner. She taught a whole course on um, chart comparison in relationship astrology, and uh, a part of our course on um, our introductory course on astrology. Um, so those lessons will be here for some time, and uh, I'll keep them. Alive uh, in the next year, so people can experience Elena even after she was gone, because she had her very special way of teaching astrology, and she was very passionate when she taught. And um, I think people should experience that and have the chance to see her. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the things that's different in terms of um, you know comparing. Um, S. Bell's legacy of just having these two books survive versus having much more output of both Helena's academic and intellectual work as well as the practical work on astrology and the, the classes and the workshops that the two of you authored together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what's the website for for your school? It's uh, academyofastrology.eu. Okay, that's the English site. Then there's also the Portuguese site, which is Academia de Astrologia.com. Yeah, and here's the website just for those looking for it, academyofastrology.eu. Um, yeah. Um, what else, uh, as we're thinking about this, were other things that you wanted to say or that we should talk about as we wrap up about just her legacy and um, what her contributions were in the end, both in terms of academics as well as in terms of the practice of astrology. I mean, it's you're at a point in your career where it's somewhat nice that you can see 
the influence, and she got to see some of the influence that she had on the astrological tradition. Although I, I kind of suspect that that might just be the sort of tip of the iceberg, so to speak, that we've seen pieces of over the past half a decade or decade or so, but that um, going forward, that might end up becoming even larger than we can tell now in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what can we say to sort of wrap up our conversation? Well, Elena was a very strong person. She she was very she had a very acute intellect and she was able to perceive people and uh, people's dynamics very easily uh, and she was an excellent counselor you know she was not only good uh, astrology in the sense a good interpreter of charts but she was also very good at counseling and transforming the astrology and the astrological interpretation in something that could be useful for for uh, the person was in front of her and she was very good at that very good at that yeah so that was that was important to her that was a core piece of her practice of astrology is that that counseling dynamic yeah and the way that you transmit uh the astrological uh, information to the other person you know and to be aware of how to do it uh and um, that that was something that was always on her mind when she was teaching, you know, not just teach the the, the doctrine, but also how you you're going to say that to to someone who who doesn't know astrology and just searches for advice. Yeah, was it meant to be useful? Was that the goal in terms of astrology for her, at least when it came to clients, or what was what did she hope that they could get out of it and also, in terms of her presentation of it, I know Zoller, for example, you know, your first teacher with traditional, that his bedside manner, as they call it, was was um, legendarily direct and kind of brusque, and he did not pull any punches, so to speak, when it comes to delineating a person's chart and sometimes saying things that could be either off-putting or just very stark when it came to interpreting the chart in the old way. Um, how did she deal with that when it came to the consulting setting? She wouldn't hide anything from you. She would not uh, she would not avoid talking about your problems and your defects and things that you were doing wrong and wrong choices and things that were incorrect. She was very straightforward with that. But she was an ancient time and she she would put you against the wall if 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 you were doing something that didn't make sense. Um, but at the same time, she was very um, caring in doing that. So she wouldn't be blunt, you know, she would be forceful, she would be direct, but not um, menacing or, or uh, doing that in sort of a abrupt way, you know. That was not her object. Her, her purpose was that the person would would get out of the consultation with a good reflection of what was happening, being behavior or or an event uh, uh, that was happening at the point, and having tools to to really work that out um, in her own life. You know, she was not into that very 
you are you are like this and this is going to happen and things like that. Uh, that was not her approach to tradition at all, as it's not mine. Uh, uh, I think um, people sometimes mistake that to be a good traditional astrologer, you have to be very harsh. That's a bit Solar's point of view. You know, we have to stray things straightforward and have that map of person's life. Well, that might work for uh, you know medieval age or no, for early modern, but nowadays you're in a different cultural setting, so you're not going to give that kind of deterministic or very uh, rigid line of, of interpretation. You know, and the, and if there's something that I've learned you know, to my old years as an astrologer is that um, you can learn that the, the tradition has very good tools to make a psychological analysis of uh, of a person very accurate and and uh, that was our approach that was something that we developed very early on and to which elena had a very keen eye you know she could immediately see conf the configurations and she would very well translate that into behavior and and you know habits and mechanisms that the person would have um to what extent was some of that maybe some Good pieces that you took from your earlier, or that she took from her earlier career in in modern astrology. Mm, perhaps she, she didn't base her, th her her in modern astrology. She she was always very concerned with counseling. I think that in another universe she would have be a very good psychologist. You know, she could have been a very good psychologist without astrology, even so, because she she would be able to. To understand people very well and to perceive how people worked very well, um, and that could have been a career for her, but she she didn't want that. Um, and I don't know if she got that from modern astrology. I think that she got that from from her own um, perception of things, and then she used um, tradition to enhance. Because I remember her saying that a lot of times that the tradition. W was giving substance to her her delineations and to her ability to interpret and help people, and it was giving her consistently tools that worked and that would give valuable information. Um, so I think we have a counseling, so a more um, modern counseling with traditional astrology, which is something people don't think that could exist, but it does. Um, were there any uh, ever any major instances where the two of you disagreed on something about astrology, and later she turned out to be right that you you can think of that are like notable instances of differences in technique or approach or observations or like initial theories that um, sometimes, especially early in one studies, somebody has or an idea that somebody has that. Maybe one of you goes in one direction and the other isn't sure about that, but then things work out in a certain way. Well, I can't. I can't recall any instances like that. I think we dialogued a lot, so so we were always discussing things and and learning together. We did all of this uh, together always, um, and talking with each other, you know, uh, in our views and debating and. 
trying to understand. Sometimes she had very good insights. Sometimes I had good insights for her. So it was kind of a half-half thing. Although we do, we did have our own uh, approach. Uh, we, know we don't do the same approach. My approach is different than hers is. I'm perhaps a bit more technical in certain aspects, and she was more technical in another aspect. But um, I guess one of them that you mentioned earlier was just in terms of differences was that you ended up focusing more on natal and going the natal route with Zoller's material, whereas she ended up getting more into horary with Sue Ward's material at one point. Yeah, at one point we did do that because we couldn't be studying the whole thing at the same time. Um, but for example, I ended up doing horary consultations. Elena didn't. She didn't like to do that alone. She would use orary always in the context of a, a regular consultation. Uh, she would never do it by itself. Um, and she didn't like to share um, her details of her birth data or her birth chart, right? No, she didn't. She didn't. What were her reasons for that? Well, she didn't want. Um, it's private. No, the chart is private, and I, I share that that view with her. The chart is private, and um, uh, I think also we were fed up with people talking about their charts, you know, and learning astrology only by their charts and their charts being the measure of everything. And so early on, we stopped uh, uh, telling people our charts and also not putting people's charts into the class context. Um, that's something I avoid altogether. I can. I always say to my students, "Well, if you want to ask something about your chart, be clever about it. Mm, ask about the okay. configuration. Don't oh, my chart has this. Don't ask me that. I'm not going to answer that." Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good tip for I think any new students of astrology that if you're going to go that route, at the very least, it should be of a, a very specific. Thing, although then sometimes that can not work because it'll be overly specific of you know yeah, five. You can always have the chart of a friend. You know, I have I seen this chart that has this configuration. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> because uh, people when they study astrology, they tend to be very obsessive about their charts. More, some more than others, and at some point, we let go of your chart. You know, you 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 don't you won't learn with your chart. You learn with other people's charts. Of course, if you're learning something, you're always going to see it in your chart. More than natural that you do it, but uh, you don't have to show it, you know, around to everyone. I don't like that. Um, or justify your choices, your likings or dislikings by your chart. You know, sometimes it gets too much. Right, like house division or rulerships or or any of the other like debates that happen in astrology. Yeah, not not really that. I mean, I, what I mean is, people saying, "Oh, I um, I don't know. I, I'm going to make something up. I like I like cakes a lot, and I eat a lot because I have Venus, whatever. And uh, I'm like this because I have whatever trine, whatever or square, whatever. Don't do that. You know, uh, <laughs> you can do that occasionally in an astrological conversation, but. People do it all the time, constantly, you know. And students emulate that, and at the same, and they're always talking about their charts. I have seen people that do sinistry, extensive sinistry with their clients before a consultation, 
come on, you know, get over it. Forget your chart. It's the other person's chart that you need to be dealing with, not your own. And it's it's not about you, you know. And it can be excessive, and that's one of the points. Uh, and um, and also, for example, when you're teaching, if the if the students know your chart, they tend to judge that you're saying certain things about certain planetary positions or certain planets because you have them in your own chart. So it's better to be as neutral as one can be about these things yeah sure that makes sense um all right and uh yeah and and in terms of what ended up happening um you, it was just unexpected but it wasn't otherwise something that you wanted to go into and so that's one of the reasons why we've deliberately not for the purpose of this but i just wanted to say that in order to avoid questions about those two topics of one the birth data and, and to the other details. Yeah, sure. What I can say about her death is that it was sudden, unexpected, a condition that suddenly popped up and it was fatal. And and I can clarify it was not COVID related because indeed it came at a time when I had to say this to people. It hadn't to do with the, the current pandemic at whatever, whatsoever. Uh it was another thing. Um uh, and it's one of those bombs that falls into your life, you know, and um, yeah. Um, has astrology something? I was talking to somebody, a, a listener of the show, asked me at one point recently who was struggling with um, grief. To what extent astrology has been helpful or or not very helpful for you in terms of the grieving process? Because I know different astrologers deal with grief and cope with things in different ways and different. Things may feel appropriate for one astrologer that are not appropriate to another, and and maybe even the same astrologer might go through different phases in which some things feel appropriate or not appropriate. Um, how how has that been for you, not just as a person but as an astrologer? Well, I won't go into personal details, but and grief, grief is something that it's very personal. It's very intimate. That changes with time. Um, and if you're an astrologer and you have lived something like this, um, whatever explanation you might try to search, you know, in charts or movements or whatever, um, in the end, you, you just have to go to the grieving process and live it no matter what can explain it or not explaining it. So, uh, what I, my advice in terms of uh, as an astrologer is that uh, don't get to obsess in grief, you know. Sure. And let let things go their own way and exist as they have to. Right. And that would be different. Will be different for 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 each person. Yeah. Right. Um, I, my last question is: What is your favorite memory of Helena from her life, or from the experiences the two of you had together? What is the most notable things that stands out as like a good memory um, as you think back from the past twenty years? That's a difficult one. <laughs> I 
I mean, because it sounds like you had a lot of really great moments together, and you yeah, yeah. encountered a lot of amazing turning points in your life during the course of your, your time together, and were able to be there at such crucial turning points in each other's lives, and and to help each other out in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah, and all of that is good. You know, it's difficult to the studying, the being together was good. It's excellent that the studying together and sharing all of this was good to share my life with her. Um, but perhaps I would say her smile, you know, when facing all of this um, and when living all of this. Yeah, she had a, a, a great smile and she had a great way of, um, like you said earlier, it seemed like she really cared with people. And when she had direct conversations with people, she was very present. And, and you could tell she was very present in every conversation that she had. And it's something that comes through in all of the conversations that the two of you recorded on the, the podcast, the Astro, Astro podcast together. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps it's that joy she had that. Uh, was there, you know, it's her. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for um, doing this with me tonight and sitting down to talk about her life and work and, and in order to remember her and to give other people some idea of of what she accomplished with her life and everything that she did and, and how hard she worked on this and how much she um, lived up to you know the high bar and set a high bar for every yeah. other astrologer and every other researcher who wants to either is or wants to get into this field yeah and that's that's something she probably would say you know set your high bar and go for it you know and follow it and try always to be the best you can be the greatest right. you can be the best you can you know aim high and do something that's noticeable, that's visible. Right. But do it good, you know, do it properly, do it respecting astrology, respecting that which is guiding you, you know, and, and that respect your passion. Yeah, and that which sometimes the the work that we do and accomplish and, and carry out, sometimes carrying over um, even when we're not around, but then still having a lasting legacy and, and an echo of our lives for a long time afterwards, yeah. and sometimes paying that forward in the astrological tradition by recognizing other astrologers that came before us um, in the way that she did with her PhD thesis of this astrologer from the 15th century. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think perhaps if we had to name two, and this might be a bit uh i don't want to leave anything out but it will be her this book of her phd and um and the on the heavenly spheres would be you know her two greatest achievements in one in astrology and one in the academic study of the history of astrology i think those two are the high points you know focal points of her work right yeah definitely um well here's the book and uh and it's an amazing accomplishment so i hope people check it out either 
you know, the PhD thesis itself, which is available online and contains so much of the the research and the core of the research, if they can't afford the book, or if you can get a copy of the book from Brill or to check one out from the library, yeah. then um, it's really worth worth checking out. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, thanks a lot for for doing this. I'm glad that we we were able to record this conversation and and to talk about this. And just um, I know a lot of people in the community when the news first came out were both really shocked and sad to hear of Helena's loss, um, and also wondering how you are doing since you're another um, respected leader in the community and respected and and everyone appreciates your contributions. So. Um, I hope that's something you know you, you know as well, and and that you, if there's anything that you need or anything in terms of the community to support you, uh, just let us know so that mm-hmm. um, you know you can keep producing your own work and other things in the future, which is very important. Yeah, yeah. Well, the work is go will go on, you know, and it's going on, and um, I'm here not only to continue our. Legacy, you know, the, our work, and uh, and continue to be here for astrology, and to also to, to to represent her as best as I can. Good, and thank you for the opportunity to present also her work to the astrological community. You know, I have um, I have done that within the academic community uh, in the past uh, months. Her book is going to be presented here on next month, um, officially, you know, launch. Of course, it has been there, but there will be an official launch, uh, which probably I'll tape. I'm not sure if I can transmit it for those who are interested in, in attending. But um, this was a good opportunity to also address her astrology, astrological uh, facet, you know, that she also had beyond her academic work and she always respect that and she always um uh, stand by it yeah it, it makes me think of the how mercury was the traditional ruler of astrology and how it was always playing that that role of bridging and bringing together those two opposite mm-hmm. areas of of everything in life and and she seems like uh almost an embodiment of that in some ways in, in bridging those two worlds of astrology astrologers in the academic community yeah 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 indeed indeed and she had that um, ability to bridge people you know groups uh, yeah. yeah yeah all right well thanks a lot for <laughs> for joining me um, for having this discussion tonight yeah I'm glad to be here and thank you for for this time as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Um, be sure to check out the websites that I'll link to in the description below this video or on the Astrology Podcast website to check out the resources that we talked about in this episode. Uh, but otherwise, that's it. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, Kristen Otero, and Sanjay Srihari. 
If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called SolarFire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io.